1: Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. I have to thank Chris O'Brien for
2: pointing me in this direction because we normally get lots of letters from publicists, book publishers suggesting, "Hey, we've got a book and we've got a guest, and wouldn't you like to have that particular guest?" And in this case, it's a gentleman named Gary Lockman and chris looked at that name and says you get him on the show (laughs) because chris of course is a rock and roller and so is gary chris why don't you explain
3: well uh, first of all you know as many of our listeners already know i was in new york during the wild and woolly 70s and 80s and um lived downtown uh for a number of years uh in manhattan and was, uh, you know, there when a lot of uh, real historic events, I mean, seeing Talking Heads with 30 people at Max's or seeing the police roadie their own gear at, at CBGB's and and seeing early shows with, with Blondie, where Gary was actually the original bass player um, before uh, going off for other pursuits and being replaced by, uh, I think it was Nigel Harrison, wasn't it? Correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, I also used to share a rehearsal space with... Chris and Debbie and Jimmy and Clem and, and the guys, uh, later on, this would have been after they had, had already had their hit with, uh, parallel lines, but in, uh, I think 81, 82, um, for a short while, it wasn't very long, a few months, we would, uh, set up and, uh, and do our thing, uh, before they would come in. And I remember sharing a few moments, uh, with them. Of course, I, I did get to know, uh, Chris and Debbie a little bit, uh, through mutual friends and, uh, it, uh, you know, as Gary will attest, uh, it was a real magical time in New York City. It was a real expansive, extremely inspiring time in the arts and uh, especially in music. And there were a lot of clubs and in great bands, bands that would come over from England. Uh, hardly anybody knew, so you'd get, you know, small crowds and get a chance to interact with uh, with people. And, and I, I think Gary will also agree that... You really had to um, have your A-game going to keep up with the nightlife there. It was uh, extremely (laughs) fast-paced, to put it uh, mildly. You know, you really had to be a professional to be able to kind of have that lifestyle and and be able to show up and know your parts and not mess up and, uh, you know, uh, put on good performances. So uh, we kind of have that thing to share um, I actually I think I met you at a, a party some studio opening party at, at one point I remember we were introduced but back then I mean gosh the parties were, were daily nightly and uh, just living that that life was quite a quite a kaleidoscope and a whirlwind of of uh, people places uh, events uh, how long how long were you in New York Gary, you, you mentioned earlier before we went on the air you're from Bayonne New Jersey which of course was right across the river the Hudson from the west side of New York City, uh, how how long were you actually there?
4: Well, I just want to say one thing. Um, when I left Blondie, um, they got another bass player, but they didn't replace me. Any case, uh, <laughs> I, I started hanging out in uh, New York in, say, around late 73, uh, 74, because um, we used to just go over you know on the path trains and just go hang out down in the village. And then when I became aware of um, people like uh, David Bowie and Lou Reed and, and that, friends and I, we read that they were hanging out in this uh, club, this place called Club 82, uh, that's not there anymore. That was on uh, East 4th East, uh, Street, uh, sort of between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. This was an old drag, like transvestite kind of club that started letting rock bands play and into the new york dolls at this time and they would play there and the word was that bowie and lou reed were hanging out at this place a lot so a couple of friends and i were determined to meet them so we used to go to this place practically every night uh and it was from being in that milieu that i wound up living in new york um uh not long after and i started out i really wasn't a musician i was i I wrote poetry Uh, It was was pretty bad. I'm glad none of it has survived. But I was kind of hanging out with kind of real musicians in in New Jersey uh, and picking up little bits and pieces. The drummer from Blondie was another fellow from Bayonne, New Jersey, uh, uh, Clem Burke. Uh, When their bass player quit... This is in a very, very early stages when Blondie, before it became Blondie, they were going through all different kinds of different transformations and trying to get something going. And at one point, Clem started playing with them, uh, Debbie and Chris. And then um, their bass player at the time quit to join television, because television's bass player Richard Hell left to do his own band called right. the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders from the New York Dolls. I had been hanging out a lot, and he said, why don't you come down and do you know, an audition? so i could you know kind of sort of almost maybe play and i looked the part i was really skinny because i was starving because at the time i was uh, working as a messenger in new york and just making enough money barely barely to like pay my little bit of the rent where i was living and i had, I had dark glasses which i wore all the time and that was enough so i started playing with them in um say around april of 75 and then we did uh the first time we played cbgb was during this um festival of unsigned New York talent. It wasn't called punk yet. Uh, and this was um, early summer of 75. And I, I was, you know, I was there for, you know, quite some time. I had my own band after I left Blondie. Uh, I had a band called The Know for a while. Uh, and we played in New York and L.A. And my, my last kind of uh, hurrah with uh, rock, uh, more or less, was when I, I played with the Iggy Pop
3: for uh, two North American tours. Oh, no kidding. Wow, that, that must have quite... That was
4: 1981,
3: yeah. That, that must have been a trip.
4: <laughs> yeah that was uh, that was the sex drugs and rock and roll tour and by the end of it or the end of both of them I would had quite enough of all all three as it were and I kind of hung my Fender stratocaster up on the wall for a while and it wasn't until many many years later in in the late 90s 96 97 when I actually was first started living here in London that I wound up doing some blondie gigs again this is at the beginning of their sort of reunion
3: yeah their comeback sure
4: you know, I'm gonna say, I was just going to say, I did some shows with them in New York and then um, these big festivals across the states, but it, it, it all sort of went uh, south uh, once again. For your readers' edification, I write about all of this in a book of mine called New York Rocker, which is about my my memoir, uh, my time, uh, playing in Blondie.
3: Well, you know, speaking of your writing, uh, you've, you've written many, many books, and um, I, I do have a couple of them. Uh, one of my favorite books, really, about a often sort of underreported and I think sensationalized uh, when you do hear about the occult and rock and roll, um, that it really hasn't been a subject that very many people have been willing to tackle. And your book, Turn Off Your Mind, uh, I think is the, if not the preeminent book about the subject, it's definitely in the top, uh, you know, the top, Ranking of books uh, covering this subject, there have been a number of books that cover the subject, but I think your book, uh, in particular, gives uh, a really a sober, well-informed look at the influence of what you could loosely uh, call the occult and um, and how it has been a, a kind of a burbling underneath <laughs> you know the surface all through the history of rock and roll. What Initially attracted you to the occult. Uh, give us a little background on your interest in the in the occult sciences and in that uh, particular subject.
4: Well, um, what I got interested in um, the occult and pretty much everything else that I've been writing about for a long time. Uh, while I was playing in Blondie, I uh, was living on the Bowery with um, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein in a um, illegal loft space which I think it's still standing, but I saw somewhere recently on Facebook or somewhere like that, that it was, it was slated to, to be demolished and another, you know, absolutely overpriced restaurant or hotel was going to be put up there. Um, but uh, when I was living there, um, there, there was still this kind of leftover um, kind of cultural debris from the previous generation. So there were books about the occult and, you know, uh, psychedelics and Castaneda and Timothy Leary and Tibetan Book of the Dead and things like that. But then also in this in this loft space, um, Chris and Debbie had a kind of kitschy, you know, kind of fun interest in it, and they decorated the place with weird, weird things like voodoo things and sort of you know upside down crosses and pentagrams and and candles and stuff like that.
2: Okay, Gary Lockman is here with Gene and Chris. You're in. The Pericast. The award winning graphic converter, the universal genius for photo editing on your Mac. Join over one and a half million loyal users for this Swiss Army Knife photo editing app. It gives you all you expect from a top flight image editing app with tons of features, and most important, it's easy to use. Get 20% off from lemkesoft.de slash gene. That's L E M K E SOFT.de slash Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on this special deal at Namecheap.com,
5: Namecheap.com. Have you ever thought you'd like to flip houses but didn't know how or where to get the money? Are you ready to be your own boss so you can start living the good life? Hi, I'm Preston Neely. I used to be so broke. I had my electricity turned off nine times, but I figured out a way to quit my job and find financial freedom in real estate. For a limited time, I want to send you a free copy of my smash hit selling book, How to Get Rich in Real Estate. It shows you how to copy exactly what I did so you can make money from the comfort of your own home without even doing any manual labor. I've already given away 5,000 books and they're going fast. To get one before they're gone, call one 800 958 9256. Listen, if you're sick and tired of stressing about money, this book could change your life. It's short, fun to read, easy to understand, and awesome. To find out how to get your free book while supplies last, call 1 800 958 9256. Call 1 800 958 9256. 1 800 958 9256.
1: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
2: So from good old rock and roll, punk rock to the occult, we're talking to Gary Lockman, and he's got a new book out. And he's got a number of books if you check his site and also Amazon. The current one is Beyond the Robot. I want to tell you about something else we've got. We've got, after the PowerCast, our exclusive podcast, which is available only to members of the PowerCast Plus. And to be able to download each weekly episode and get a commercial-free version of this show, join the PowerCast Plus at dot plus.thepowercast.com, plus.thepowercast.com. So, Gary's talking about his early days of hanging out with Debbie Harry and the people from Blondie and living in this loft illegally. Of course, now there are a lot of homes in New York that, whether legal or not, you can't afford them. But I assume here, did they actually have to pay rent to live in this place or what?
4: Well, we paid rent, but it was sort of like someone had got hold of this space and was not really supposed to rent out the other floors, and was doing that, and then somehow we got the electricity tapped into this liquor store that was downstairs. So they were paying our electricity bill. It was things like that. I was going to say this fellow who sort of had the place. He himself was interested in the occult, and he was he was he was a great fan of Alistair Crowley, who was this fantastically uh, flamboyant dark magician in Britain in the early uh, 20th century. And he would do these impromptu readings with his tarot cards and things like that. And so I gradually got interested in this stuff because it was there. It was kind of in the atmosphere. One book that I picked up at the time uh, was simply called The Occult. And it was by this British right. writer named Colin Wilson. Colin Wilson. Uh, Who, as you mentioned, my most recent book, Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson, is is a biography of. And as I said, I hadn't any interest in it. I was always reading. I I, I read tons of stuff all the time, you know, the Beats and the Existentialists and all this kind of stuff. But what I liked about his book is that first off, the the writing, the narrative was so good. The writing style was so good. He just, I didn't want to put it down. And then he was talking about all of this, interesting stuff about different states of consciousness and hidden powers and you know uh, all that kind of thing but it was in the context of this kind of philosophy in this kind of context of well i later realized it was in the context of what was known as existential philosophy which he had written about already and all that but i was just 19 picking this book up and it was like wow this is you know i was just bowled over by it and that's how i got interested in it so i started out sort of a naive enthusiast And I just ran out and started reading all the books about this I could get. And this was a time in 75 when there was a lot of stuff that was available and it was cheap. There were a lot of classic occult texts that would be reprinted in these kind of cheap editions. And they were all on the remainder tables in places like Barnes and Noble and all like that. So I just wound up just more and more reading, reading, reading about it. And I got a reputation for carrying, you know, all these books around uh, with me when I went on tour. Uh, And stuff like that. And when, you know, other guys are out, you know, having a wild time, I'd I'd be back in the hotel, you know, digging through, you know, the stack of books I had.
2: I wonder how they reacted to that, because you always think of rock and rollers going out and drinking and smoking and sniffing and everything and having wacky times and basically almost getting away from it all. Because if you're on something, it's hard to take attention to real world. And you're sitting there, you're the bookworm. Did they make fun of you for that?
4: Uh, Sometimes, uh, but I think at one point when things started to get a bit acrimonious between um chris debbie and myself i think they were worried that i was going to cast spells on them something like that
3: (laughs) oh right so that was almost a, a good uh you know the best uh offense is a good defense so just carry around some uh books that uh might shake people's uh belief systems a little bit and that uh that might alleviate some problems
2: when things got difficult Start speaking some spells, even gibberish spells under your breath, so they'd kind of walk away.
3: Start start toning uh, Enoki and chants in a deep guttural voice. That that generally does the trick.
4: <laughs> Absolutely, but I was going to say, I mean, at least there was w- one very good thing for myself and Blondie as a whole came out of all this was that a song I wrote. I'm always touched by your presence, dear. Became a big hit in the UK and in Europe. It wasn't so, it wasn't a hit in the states, but over this side of the Atlantic, it was. And this was a song about the telepathic and strange kind of dream experiences my girlfriend at the time and I were, were having. Uh, we discovered that uh, while I was on tour, we we just found out that we were sort of having the same kinds of dreams, or we would call each other at the same time, and all this sort of stuff. That actually, it's not that unusual among couples. I mean, um, there's a lot of evidence to uh, and a lot of stories. That show that there is this kind of telepathic connection. But it was something that because I was reading about this stuff and so was uh, my girlfriend at the time and we we were just becoming, hey, you know, this is actually real. And so I wrote that song about it. So something very good came out of it instead of just sort of paranoia about my, my casting spells.
2: This may be an emotional question that you don't want to answer, but having left Blondie before Parallel Lines, do you ever feel kind of like Pete Best and the Beatles?
4: You're not the first to say that. Not really. Not really, to be absolutely candid and honest. I mean, at the time, I wanted to have my own band. And so that was the main driving thing. And then later on, okay, yeah, sometimes you felt like, well, you know, uh, God, I could have maybe used that money or so on and so on. But no, because I actually had to say it. I just, my sensibilities had changed. And so by the time that I saw that they were becoming, you know, huge, which was like sort of the early, early 80s, I was gradually moving out of playing music anyway because I was doing so much reading. It was just difficult for me to. One thing happened: I couldn't write songs. I, I, I was writing. I wrote lots of songs. That's the one thing. If I have any regrets about that time, was that there's quite a few very good songs in mine if I have to say so myself that didn't get an airing. A few that did, you know, um, I'm grateful for. But there's, there's, you know, there's a, there's a clutch of some that that didn't didn't get out there. Uh, but no, no, not really. I mean, in fact, uh, this was something that. Uh, what I did after leaving Blondie and and then leaving my, you know, rock and roll in general, um, I went back to university and I, I got a degree in philosophy. I remember my philosophy teacher saying to me, you gave up rock and roll to come here you know, and study this? <laughs> yeah, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't conceive of it. They couldn't conceive yeah.
3: of it. It's almost like oil and water. You
2: but know, is it you- really because I think a lot of people, rock, rock and rollers, are interested in, in the occult to some degree. Maybe they don't pursue it as deeply as you
3: have. Well, the occult is one thing, Gene. Philosophy is something else. Uh, sure, sure. You know, you could, uh, philosophy is a very, very difficult academic subject to study. It's, it's. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, research and reading and concentration and thinking that has to go on, uh, which is almost... Uh, And it's like the antithesis of rock and roll. Rock and roll is, is, um, with few exceptions, of course. I mean, there's some really great, very, very talented. Poets and songwriters, you know, just look at Dylan and, you know, people like Springsteen, others who really put a lot of thought and really work on their craft. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I mean, it's, you know, the last thing that you're going to hear somebody talking about it at a, a party with a bunch of rock and rollers is, uh, you know, what what do you think of Immanuel Kant versus, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know did you know that uh, that uh, Descartes uh, got his axiom, uh, you know, the, the secret of nature is... Uh, Uh, measurement and and number. Did you know that that was brought to him by an angel? Let's break it here, Chris, okay? The book is Beyond
2: the Robot. Gary Lachman is our guest. With Gene and Chris, you're in The
9: Pericast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
10: Why be held hostage by your wireless carrier for two years? What if you had no contract, no activation fees, no hidden costs, tracking, tracing, harvesting customer data, or draconian gimmicks? All on America's largest 4G, LTE, GSM, and Sprint networks. Introducing PIX Wireless. Activate your Sprint, AT&T, or unlock GSM phones with PIX, and choose from an arsenal of monthly plans or build your own. Starting at only 2 dollars per month. Get connected now. Call or click 1-866-205-9513 or PIXwireless.com, spelled P-I-X-Wireless.com. Pick PIX and get connected today.
11: Want to build a maintenance-free, low-and-slow charcoal briquette fire that burns for hours? For free, MeatMastersRadio.com will show you how to build a low-temp charcoal fire that's guaranteed fiddle-proof. It's easy and free. MeatMastersRadio.com teaches charcoal barbecue skills on new topics every week. Go to MeatMastersRadio.com. That's MeatMastersRadio.com.
12: My computer is so slow, it's making me crazy. I used to have that problem. Did you quit using a computer or or did you
13: buy a new one? No, I called Geeks On Site. They made an appointment to visit my home and showed up the same day.
12: You mean they didn't ask you to bring your computer to a shop? That's what happened when I called a support company.
14: Geeks On Site can go to your home or business or even repair your computer online. They have 24 7 emergency service. If you are having problems with your PC or Mac, call Geeks On Site. 1 800 591 1682. Our friendly certified computer repair. Repair Experts are available 24-7. Call now for a free diagnosis. 1-800-591-1682. Data recovery, virus removal, and maintenance for all laptops, desktops, printers, and networks. That's Geeks On Site for friendly, certified computer repair experts available 24-7 over the phone or in your home or business. Just call 1-800-591-1682. That's 1-800-591-1682. 1-800-591-1682. My name is Lee and I'm 41. I've been using One World Wave for two and a half years now. I suffered a bulged L4 and L5 disc from a car accident three years ago. And since that time, I've been unable to walk long distances, do any minor lifting or just normal activities with my children without having severe back pain. Since I've started using One World Way, I've been able to walk more, engage in activities with my children and have less lower back pain. One World Way has helped me regain back my strength, confidence, and have a healthier life. I've noticed a weight loss of about 20 pounds, my A1C dropped two points, and I have more energy now. One World Way has helped me regain back my life.
15: The results for clients on One World Way have surpassed the results for most any other supplements as well as all other whey protein powders. One World Whey is non-denatured and frequency encoded. We believe the frequency encoding increases your body's production of glutathione and energy production. Call 888-988-3325 or visit oneworldwhey.com. That's oneworld, W-H-E-Y, dot com.
13: Dangerous blood clot device alert. If you or a loved one had an IVC filter placed to prevent blood clots from traveling to your heart or lungs and suffered an injury, you may be entitled to substantial financial compensation. The FDA warns that IVC filters may cause serious complications such as heart or lung damage, internal bleeding, and even death. These dangerous blood clot devices can break and the metal fragments can travel to your heart or lungs causing serious injuries. If you or a one suffered organ damage or other injuries from an IVC filter, you may be entitled to substantial financial compensation. Act now. Time is limited to file a claim. For a free consultation and free information, call Injury Help Desk at 800 478 1507. 800 478 1507. 800 478 1507. This is an advertisement. Paid non attorney spokesperson. Injuryhelpdesk.com is responsible for this advertisement. Principal Office Las Vegas, Nevada.
14: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
2: So let's leave rock and roll behind. Maybe we'll get back to it later.
3: Uh, not so fast. Not so fast. Okay. A little bit more
2: rock and roll, Chris, but then One we need to get it's back to philosophy and Colin Wilson.
3: It's going to dovetail nicely. One thing that I've noticed as the years have progressed, um, we've had ebony and flowing waves of indignant parents and groups headed by Tipper Gore that really try to put a spotlight on the whole subject of the occult and popular music. And, and recently, in the last number of years, with you know some kind of grandstanding by people like Jay-Z and Beyonce with a line of clothing with sort of Masonic symbols and that sort of thing, and Madonna and her studying the Kabbalah and, and you know, stories like that, how big of a role do you really think the occult has in rock and roll with actual serious practicing, shall we say, or or um, serious occult practices that are being applied to uh, music or or any of the arts, for that matter, popular arts. Do you think that there is a large group of people that are actually uh, actively pursuing uh, this particular connection, or do you think most of it's just fully overblown by the press?
4: I think there's probably a few... Well, it depends what you mean by serious... Um, but, I think there's probably a few people that are serious, probably a few people that are really you know get into it and do all the rituals and all that. But I think mostly it's probably blown up. It's something that uh, it makes good copy. Uh, and it, it helps you know it helps the celebrities as well. Um, I mean, I, I I write a bit about this at the end of my, my book on Aleister Crowley, which is uh, subtitled Magic, Rock and Roll, and the Wickedest Man in the World.
3: Which I and, do have, by the way.
4: I mentioned earlier that you know Crowley um, was this notorious you know magician from you know the early 20th century. He was rediscovered in in the 60s and kind of seen as a proto hippie, and ever since then he's been um, a kind of icon. For this aspect of rock and roll mr Uh, crowley yeah yeah. (laughs) when i was in the business let's say the the few people i met that had an interest in this uh have to say they didn't impress me very much and and i i don't mean to speak ill of the dead but I, i i do tell a story in new york rocker about getting kicked out of david bowie's uh loft in midtown manhattan because we had a disagreement precisely about colin wilson i i Got invited to this party there, so I went, and then there was a lull in the conversation, and I-, I could gather it had been about the occult in some way, and someone said, oh, well, Gary knows all about the occult, because, you know, he reads he reads Colin Wilson, so this is about 1980, 80, 1981, something like that. And Bowie started saying something like, oh, Colin Wilson, he, he heads a coven in Cornwall and he goes around, you know, drawing pentagrams on people's doorsteps. And I said, well, actually, David, I, I don't think that's really quite true. And then then he said, oh, yes, he sort of materializes dead Nazis and all this kind of weird stuff he was saying. And I just, you know, very gently basically said, well, David, I really don't think that's the case. Well, actually, no. And it's sort of like that. And then eventually, uh, he had he had these two women uh, bodyguards, and they were very much like Thumper and Bambi from one of the early you know Bond films. I, I forget which one. I think it maybe it's uh, Diamonds on Forever or something like that. And they basically come over and said, you know, David's very tired. It's 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 probably time you should go home. And they walked me out of the place. And then I later realized, like, what actually he was doing is that he had read some stuff that Wilson had written about somebody else and mes- mushing it together in his head and saying it was about Wilson. So I think there's lots of people who take on this stuff. And as most artists do in different ways, they they look for inspiration in different kinds of things and they'll get something out of it and then they move on to something else. I mean, like Jagger and the Rolling Stones, he was interested in the cult for a while at sort of the late 60s, 68, 69. But then after Altamont, when the, when the whole hippie dream just went down the tubes, he dropped it very quickly. I, I think the real serious sort of people don't, talk a lot about it because that's part of it that's part of the seriousness about it is not talking a lot about it
3: right you have someone like a jimmy page who mm-hmm. even though he never talks about this subject uh is known to be extremely adept and has well as far as Crowley goes he's probably one of the top collectors of, of curliana and curly memorabilia and there's others too that um mm-hmm. You don't care about near as much that uh, that I actually really are uh, very, very passionate about the subject and are very active uh, in it. But I think, like you're saying, most of it's kind of faddish and passing interest. Uh, for instance, Bowie, uh, when he was really strung out on cocaine in L.A., was <laughs> was actually losing his... His marbles, uh, over paranoia uh, induced by by his study of the occult. So, anyway, I, I thought I'd bring that up because I, I do uh, I do have more than a passing interest in the subject, and uh, actually have the only surviving book from Crowley's library that was supposed to be burnt upon his death. I just happened <laughs> to come into custodialship of this particular work. Uh, what,
4: what, what what book is it?
3: It's the author's proof copy zero of the first two hundred of the Book of Thoth.
4: Oh, fantastic! My God, I mean that's yeah. something Jimmy Page would would be coming after you to get.
3: As far as I well, can I, you know, one would think. But we've my brother and I had it from I think we got it in eighty three or four, and uh, we've been um, very faithfully keeping it in, in safe hands. And uh, the pagination is completely different from all the other books, which uh, I think anyone who knows anything about. Uh, You know, gematria and and the attributional qualities of numbers. Uh, That's very important because it does link that particular book directly back to the Book of the Law. And and there's a cipher that's uh, pretty amazing in there. And I probably shouldn't be talking about this on the
16: But let me ask you a quick
2: question, Chris. If Jimmy Page sent you an email and said, "Chris, five hundred (laughs) thousand dollars."
3: Jimmy Page would never do that, number one. He's a, a real cheapskate. Uh, oh, it would be $50. Che- <laughs> well, we've turned down 28000 Well, at least we have a range there. I mean, you have your price, though. It's just a question. It's, of- it's It's priceless to the right person. There is no price on it. And the book is not for sale. I would never... Ever use the word "sale" or "sell" in conjunction with that book? I will be uh, handsomely rewarded for my very faithful custodialship of a very important magical item. The book will never be sold. I, I'm—I know a little bit too much about this subject matter to even <laughs> consider that as even a possibility.
2: Gary, let's move from rock and roll to Colin Wilson. All right. He's not a household name, so maybe Ooh. tell us something about his background and more about the things that attracted you to his work you did meet him at some point in time right mm. yes
4: yeah, so, well uh, at one point he was sort of a household neighbor that's 60 years ago the outsider. Uh, yeah his first book uh it's called the outsider and it was published in 1956 and it was a surprise bestseller on both sides of the atlantic he um is A Brit. Um, He grew up in the industrial Midlands, Leicester, city called Leicester, whose football team surprisingly won the um, you know big big prize last year, Uh, and um, uh, he basically you know he 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 worked for years at all these different menial kinds of jobs. He refused to sort of succumb to the system, and he had an overpowering desire to like not to sort of fight off this kind of boredom, this kind of lethargy, this kind of sleep that he felt that. Most of the people around him were in, and what he what he did he had he had a great profound belief in his own brilliance and genius, and then for years he worked at becoming a writer, and as I said he 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 would move from job to job you know digging ditches washing dishes being a hospital porter you know uh, being a, a busboy and a calf and all this kind of thing, and wrote and wrote and wrote. What happened is that he wrote this book about characters like himself who are on the outside of society. Uh, who were seeking something deeper and more meaningful than the sort of button-down, uh, nine-to-five, you know, bourgeois world that was available to them? And he handed it in part of it to a publisher here, who immediately recognized that this was a brilliant work. And then when it was published in May of 1956, it, it was an overnight success. He woke up the next morning; he was 24 years old, uh, this young man, and his first book was an overnight success. And all of the all of the top sort of highbrow Book reviewers of the day, people like Cyril Connolly, who's still known, uh, you know, to people who are, you know, familiar with English literature. He was, he was a friend of Orwell and Huxley and all that crowd, and was a big name. And Philip Toynbee, Edith Sitwell, J. B. Priestley, all of these wonderful, you know, very important writers, were singing his praises.
2: Right. We've got more to come with Gary Lockman and Gene and Chris. You're in
3: the barrigast. <laughs>
2: Stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Powercast. podcast. You go to store.thepowercast.com. Stop by and take a shopping tour.
13: Paid Payton Attorney Spokesperson Adam Pelesky of the Pelesky Law Firm with principal, often used to Texas. Is the attorney responsible for the content of this ad? This ad is not legal advice. and The choice of a lawyer should not be based solely upon advertisement services, may not be available in all states. Attention, Zarelto users. If you or a loved one took Zorelto and suffered a serious bleeding event, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Zarelto is a popular prescription blood thinner used to prevent blood clots and protect patients from strokes. These serious bleeding events have led to numerous cases of hospitalization and even death. Phone lines are open 24 7 call 800-261-0937 that's 800 no, no,
15: no, no. <laughs> 261
11: wanna build a maintenance free low and slow charcoal briquette fire that burns for hours for free meatmastersradio.com will show you how to build a low temp charcoal fire that's guaranteed fiddle proof it's easy and free meatmastersradio.com teaches charcoal barbecue skills on new topics every week Go to MeatMastersRadio.com. That's MeatMastersRadio.com.
17: Are you retired or facing retirement and you're afraid your income is going to be less than you'd like? I'm Pharmacist Keith, Dr. Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy, and I want to show you a low-cost way to create your own business, working around your current schedule, creating extra income that will last for years to come, by joining Dr. Wallach's crusades, spreading his message of better health. To learn more, visit radio.recordedvideo.com, that's radio.recordedvideo.com, radio.recordedvideo.com, or call 866-257-3105 for a recorded message.
14: You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com. And if you decide you like it and want to connect with people, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. Mark Rawlings, president of ParanormalDate.com, says so many people hunger to share their experiences about the paranormal, the unexplainable, or the afterlife, and so much more. And this is the source for them to meet and share that common interest. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com paranormaldate.com and use the code George if you decide to connect with someone you like by now you know that
7: wireless technology like cell phones do in fact pose dangers to the health and privacy of everyone blockit pocket's wide range of products are unmatched in providing the protection you deserve no scare tactics just common sense blockitpocket.com offers quality american-made options to alleviate and eliminate these invisible dangers learn more at blockitpocket.com or call 888 888- BlockItPocket.com Enhancing health and privacy
17: Hey, this is Marie D. Jones The author of this book is from the future And you are listening to the Paracast The gold standard of paranormal radio
2: So we're painting the background here, the early days of Colin Wilson, where he suddenly, overnight, becomes a best-selling author. And that itself, for a guy of 24, has got to be a pretty big deal, a huge deal.
4: Oh, absolutely. And the strange thing was that the book was about, what he says, uh, alienation, creativity, and extreme mental states. It was about these strange um, characters who lived on on the outskirts of society. And uh, one of the things that was really influential about the book was that it talked about people that at the time nobody knew about who subsequently became very, very popular, people like Herman Hesse who was the German writer whose novels I, I grew up reading in the 70s, and then they, were, they became really big in the late 60s and then in the 70s and all that. And um, also uh, Gordjev, who's this uh, enigmatic Armenian Russian uh, esoteric teacher. Uh, but he's also talking about existentialism and people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and all of these kind of strange characters that are driven by this need to have a kind of deeper sense of meaning and purpose. And this became a bestseller. But then what happened was that he got caught up in what was called the angry young men craze. And this was sort of the British kind of version of the beat generation. These were these writers who were basically, you know, dropping out of society. And, you know, basically what most of them were talking about were these social issues. But Wilson was interested in something that was much more of a kind of a spiritual, mystical kind of experience. In any case, all this stuff got a lot of press at the time. Uh, and it was in the Sunday supplements, and it was in the news all the time. and you have to say this is fifty six It's around the same time that Elvis was becoming popular, and James Dean had just passed away not too long ago. so th- this the kind of media craze that we're familiar with now was something that was new and was happening, and he got caught up in it. and as happens here often, um the Brits really like a success story, but then they like they also like it when it turns around and and you're brought down and so a few months after his and everyone was singing his praises, he was turned. Uh, They turned against him, and he became persona non grata. And basically, he left London and moved to the far west of England, which is Cornwall, the furthest, furthest tip down, down near Penzance, you know, where the pirates are from and all that. Let me ask you a question
2: here about fleeting fame, though. Did he do anything or say anything, or is it just people decided, well, it wasn't so great after all what he wrote?
4: Well, I think the thing with him is that he's a young man. Uh, He had spent 10 years learning how to write. He confided in his journal... You know, how much he believed in himself and his genius and all that. Then when he woke up that morning and everybody else agreed with him, you know, all the newspapers were saying, yes, Colin, you're right. He was very naive and very candid, and when he would be talking, you know, in interviews, he would he would just sort of say, you know, yes, you know, well, actually, you know, I have to believe in myself, and yes. And he was doing the kind of thing that English you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to be rather humble and modest about your achievements. You're not supposed to you're not supposed to draw attention to yourself. And also, there was a backlash, I think, because he was a working class writer. He came out of this. His father worked in a boot and shoe factory and earned like you know three pounds a week during the '30s. He, he was definitely working class. And he was criticizing the system. And in England, the system doesn't mind being criticized if it's done by one of its members. So if an Aldous Huxley, let's say, or an Orwell or something like that, who's part of kind of like, you know, the upper class more or less, does it, that's okay. But they don't like if somebody from the working class is doing it. And then Wilson also was not a university kid. He didn't go to university. He left school when he was 16 after an aborted suicide attempt. And hitchhiked around England, hitchhiked around France, slept rough all the time, and read and read and read and read. So he kind of came out of the cold. And I think people felt a little embarrassed after singing his praises at first. And then what had happened was that he was getting too much publicity. Um, because he was he was kind of like a literary Elvis in a way. He was kind of like a pop star. And he found himself in the company of people like Marilyn Monroe on one occasion and Laurence Olivier uh, and other actors. Uh, because of his fame, he was he was being invited to these parties and things like that and so on. And so he's wounding up in the papers a lot. And I think, you know, the idea was like, well, mm, he can't really be that serious of a writer if he's, you know, turning up in, in the Sunday supplements all the time and there's all this kind of stuff going on. There was a lot of, the other thing that happened is that the press kind of invented this. You know, the press invented this this angry young man thing going on because there was not much happening at the time. And so, you know, they build something up and they and they then they knock it down. So he got caught up in that. But what happened to him, rather than the other writers, uh, where many of them stopped writing, he just kept doing. Kept oh, my rowing.
3: God. He wrote over 50 books, I think, and probably even more than that. He wrote over 100. 100. There you go. I mean, talk about a guy that could crank it out. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Plus, he edited uh, a number of books and co-authored uh, a number of books as well. The Goblin yeah, Universe, uh, the Ted Holiday book, is one of my all-time favorites, and and he wrote an extensive beginning to that because uh, Holiday actually died before the book came out, and it was never actually supposed to be published, and and uh, it went on to be, I think, a very very important book that not many people really are aware of. I've got a number of his books.
4: Is, is this this is the Goblin universe? I think the right? Goblin
3: universe. Right. Yeah. No,
4: I mean, well, uh, Wilson was instrumental in getting that book published. I mean, yeah. He 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 put it together. I mean, he's had a very long career. Um. So he went from being sort of really well known to being a kind of pariah, and then he had a comeback in the early '70s because he wrote a book about the occult, and the occult had become very popular again in the mid '60s. Um. There was a book called The Morning of the Magicians. They came yeah. out in the early 60s, and this kind of kicked off what's known as the occult revival of the 1960s. And by the mid-60s, by the mid 60s, you have the most famous people in the world, like the Beatles, and then the second most famous, the Rolling Stones, getting interested in all this kind of stuff. Uh, Crowley's on the cover of Sergeant Peppers, and, and so on and so on. People like Jung, Aldous Huxley, who wrote Doors of Perception, which was about the you know, use of masculine and all that. So at the end of the 60s, Wilson is asked to write this book about the occult, and he's really not interested in it. He's always, you know, kind of read it. It was fun, you know, reads, but he didn't take it seriously. He was a serious philosopher and, and, you know, so on and all that. But then when he did the research, he realized, oh, my God, actually, there's as much evidence here for the validity of this as there is for, like, neutrinos or protons or whatever you want to call these weird things that, you know, elementary physicists find. And so he wrote this book, and it brought him out of the cold again. It was a bestseller. And it's what introduced me to this whole topic and also introduced lots of other people.
3: Yeah, yeah, including me. That was my first Wilson book that I read. The first one I got, too. Now, just to point
2: things out here, we're three years too late on interviewing him. He died in 2013, but was in really bad health from 2011 on. But I also noticed he wrote a lot of fiction.
4: Yes. Uh, he wrote. He wrote quite a few novels, and they're very good reads. I mean, in fact, just recently I, I gave a talk at the British Museum, here in London, which is you know it's it's like the Met. It's like a huge museum it's a here.
3: Pretty prestigious gig, there, guy. Yeah,
4: absolutely. Well, thank you very much. I told the story of like what he used to do at one point to save money. He didn't. He didn't. There was one summer where he didn't rent a room somewhere. This is 1954. I mean, He's about 22. What he did was he got a waterproof sleeping bag, and he would sleep. Up uh, there's this big open patch of, of Greenland at the north of London here called the Hampstead Heath. And it's like a wonderful, like, you know, kind of huge park. And he would sleep there at night, then cycle down and write during the day at, at the British Museum. in what, what used to be the old reading room where people like Marx and Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells had worked. And while he was, this is before he was working on The Outsider, he, he, wrote, he wrote a novel called Ritual in the Dark, which is a kind of existential thriller. And it's best described as Jack the Ripper meets the brothers Karamazov in post-war London, um, because it, 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 it uses the sort of the, um, the theme of the Ripper murders to, to uh, investigate questions of freedom and purpose and consciousness and all these kinds of things. And then he went on to write many, many other novels. One of, the, one of his best is called The Mind Parasites, which is a science fiction novel about these kind of psychic vampires living, living in the mind. Uh, and they've been sucking human, you know, vitality dry for centuries. Um, and sounds uh, like the
3: U.S. Uh, political system.
2: <laughs> oh well. Uh oh, Chris is mentioning I, I, the I P
3: word added, I here. Know.
4: Yeah. Um, <laughs> let say Many minds left there to suck
3: dry. <laughs> so they've done a damn good job because uh, America is now filled with the largest concentration of people in waking coma that probably have ever <laughs> existed. So. They've done a great job. They've sucked the American uh, public uh, dry. So,
4: yeah, so he, he, wrote, he wrote lots of fiction. And, and what he also did was um, he was very good at using sort of genre fiction for his philosophical purposes. So he wrote in all different fields. He wrote science fiction. He wrote crime novels. He even wrote sort of pornographic novels or sort of erotic novels. And that's something that's that's of great interest in um, a lot of his early work is sex. Sex is something that, well, he thought about a great deal, to put it put it that way. But it's not lurid. It's not kind of, or it isn't sort of titillating, or even like approaching pornography. Say like somebody like Henry Miller uh, is doing. He's actually trying to analyze like what, because he's 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 interested in these, these moments of intensity, these sort of power experiences. Uh, the, the orgasm is one of them, but he also you know you also get them from um, you know uh, what he calls peak experiences. He borrows the term from the American psychologist Abram Maslow.
2: Let's do our break here. And go back with Gary Lockman talking about Colin Wilson and Morth Jean and Chris. You're in the
3: Paragast.
9: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive dot today.
1: That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com.
16: This is Dan Pillett. Do you owe the IRS money you can't pay? Are tax debts crippling you? I've defended people from the IRS for over 30 years. I've helped thousands and I can help you too. I wrote the book on IRS settlement and I'm telling you, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX to finally get free of IRS debt. With the IRS's new programs, there's never been a better time to solve your problem. Call 800-34-NO-TAX. That's 800-34-NO-TAX or my website, danpilla.com.
6: There is an affordable alternative to the high cost of healthcare that offers freedom from insurance while providing compliance with the Obamacare individual mandate. Imagine having access to quality, affordable healthcare that allows you the freedom to choose your doctor and hospital. Members can share up to 100% of necessary medical expenses, including some alternative treatments. Find out how you and your family can contain healthcare costs without giving up your freedom. Go to libertyoncall.org. That's libertyoncall.org.
1: Welcome back to the Paracast The gold standard of paranormal radio And now, here's Gene Steinberg
2: So Gary Lockman, you're talking about Colin Wilson and his focus in his books on sexuality would you go on with
3: that, please?
4: Well, sex is something that occupied uh, Wilson's attention, not only in, you know, the usual way it does. Uh, now,
3: when uh, you say usual, do you mean the repressed English? Man, no,
4: no, I mean the sense that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I I could imagine people tittering in the background about, wow, whose, whose attention isn't occupied by it? But you know what I mean. You know, as a young man, he was very interested in sex. One of the things that he regrets or he says in his autobiography is that um, he, he was he was very devoted to um, his wife Joy um, who, um, they, stayed, they were together for God who knows forever from 5054 on or something like that until his death so a very long time. but he did have ample opportunities to stray which he um, you know did not take. but he was always very interested in sex because he wasn't interested in drugs or the drug of his choice was alcohol and uh, mostly red wine. So he wasn't really part of the 60s kind of drug thing, and he actually was quite critical of it in some ways. Uh, but but sex was this kind of altered state or this intensity experience that was was a p- powerful one for him. And in, in his novels and in some of his philosophical works, he um, focuses on it a great deal. And he wrote a book in the early 60s called um, Origin of the Sexual Impulse. And yes, it, it goes without saying that He's looking at it from a male point of view. So it's, it's it's a male point of view about the sexual impulse, but he's trying to understand what, what exactly is it? What exactly is it that drives and what, what what is the nature of the sexual impulse? And the conclusion he comes to is it's got much more to do with the mind, much more to do with the imagination than it does with any kind of simple physical response. In the same way, say that hunger or thirst is a kind of simple physical response. One of the insights he has, which, you know, depending on how you look at it, may seem impressive or may seem banal, is that where if we're hungry, you can't imagine a steak and actually eat it and satisfy the hunger. If you're thirsty, you can't imagine a glass of water and drink it and satisfy the thirst. But if you feel sexually aroused, you can imagine a sexual partner to which you can focus your sexual attention and then bring yourself to a satisfying conclusion, right? Many people do this very often. (laughs) So sex must be something to do at least as much with the mind and the imagination as it does just with the simple kind of physical bodily response, because if it was simple bodily response. Then, you know, we, we would um, not be able to satisfy it in the same way that we can with in the same way that we can't satisfy hunger or, or, or thirst in that way. And so it's from that beginning that he, he looks and he, he's very good at analyzing both his own experience and the accounts of others experience. People like Henry Miller or Vladimir Nabokov or Lolita and a variety of other, you know, people writing about D.H. Lawrence, uh, Desaad, uh, and he writes really brilliantly, I think, about Victorian pornography and how it, it is kind of a weird sort of aftergrowth of
3: romanticism.
4: In, in, in a way, it's a kind of idealism, in a way, because it idealized sex into something that is
3: actually much more intense than than, than it really is. Right, and of course, he, um, you know, being born in the early 30s, there was still a little bit of a re- residual, uh kind of cultural um sort of tidewater flat of Victorian England, of course, probably sexually one of the most rep- repressed periods in history, and especially among the Brits. And, I mean, it was so bad that, um I forget who brought up this little quip on an interview I heard, but they would actually dress the legs of pianos with pant legs, uh, because they felt that even the sight of a, the leg of a piano might arouse uh, young boys. Mm, um, now, yeah, th- no, that's really going over the top.
4: No, that's <laughs> absolutely true. And, uh, I mean, he and, actually he, he was coming out as a writer at a time when there was still um, uh, obscenity laws and censorship and things of that sort. I mean, in fact, at one point before he made it, when he was uh, hoboing around in France and he ended up in Paris... He got a job trying to sell copies of the Paris Review, which was just getting up at the time. This is about 1952 or 53. Uh, it's, it's since become, you know, one of the most recognized literary journals of all time. And George Plimpton was the guy who started it.
2: You know, let me um, just tell you something really stupid. Back in the 1970s, I worked for a typesetting plant in New York City and the Paris Review was one of our clients. Here you go. So I probably read lots of articles unconsciously, and maybe absorbed a few.
4: Could very well, could very well. In Wilson's case, the Paris Review was kind of like the acceptable sort of literary world that he had found himself in in Paris at the time. But at the same time, he met um, writers who were working for this French publisher named Maurice girodius who was responsible for, for the Olympia Press. And if you met, if you know what the Olympia Press was, Olympia Press was, were these books that you could not get um, over the channel. Um, they sold in France, and they were literary works, but they were about sex. So you had Lolita, or you had uh, The Ginger Man by uh, Dunleavy, or you had uh, Miller's books, uh, and they even, they published early on William Burroughs and things like that. And all these writers that Wilson met there at the time were actually, uh, you know, working on serious books, but they were also sort of supplementing their income a great deal by by writing sort of, um, I don't know, Kind of a dollar a page, you know, pornography <laughs> for Maurice Gerodius, and um, Gerodius approached him to write a book um, about about sex, a kind of sex novel. He accepted doing it because he wanted to be able to have the freedom to write, and as I said, there was still a kind of repression in in, in England about about writing about this kind of thing. But actually, uh, when he talked to his English publisher, that he was mentioned that he was doing this book. On sex, he said, "Well, let me let, you know, let, let me take a look at it before you you know you sign the contract completely and all that." Um, and um, so he did, and it wound up being published here. And um, original title was "Man Without a Shadow," but um, to Wilson's chagrin, but probably uh, very wisely by the you know uh, publicist point of view. The publisher changed it to um, The Sex Diary of Gerard Sorm. And Gerard Sorm is the character who's in Wilson's first novel, The Rich, Ritual in the Dark, which itself is about sex a great deal. And, and this is a journal about this, this this kind of rootless intellectual character who finds himself um, in London about his sexual experiences. And interesting thing about the book is that one of the characters in it is based on Alistair Crowley. Um, and this is about 1962. So Crowley had yet to be, you know, embraced, you know, by the pop culture. Then He was still kind of um, uh, an eccentric figure. So Wilson was ahead of the game there, once again, writing about somebody like that. And this is something he, was, he doesn't get credit for. I mentioned Herman Hesse, but he was also ahead of the game writing about H.P. Lovecraft, you know, the great um, horror, horror fiction writer who's since, I don't know about in the States, but over here in England, he's turning up in Penguin Classics. I mean, I, I, you know, I grew up reading Lovecraft in these these wonderful, you know, paperback reprints of, of, of this you know pulp stuff that he was writing in the in the 20s and the 30s, along with Robert E. Howard, who wrote you know the King, the the, the Conan stories and stuff like that. Um, but Wilson was writing about him in advance too. So this is another thing about him that that really myself and many other people appreciate him for because he introduced us to lots of other things. That probably wouldn't have known about
3: you know. Um, you yeah, it sure didn't hurt to have an incredibly, uh, just an incredible writing style. Um, one of the better writers, really, I think, in in the twentieth mm-hmm. century. Uh, just in terms of pure, of pure, uh, just brilliant, just brilliant writing style. Mm-hmm. Uh, just really good. One of my favorites. Absolutely. So what um what aspects of his um uh, work uh I I mean it's really difficult to write a book about an author as prolific as he was mm-hmm. um what aspect or give our our listeners a a sense of how you approached uh such a daunting mm-hmm. task and um and give us a sense of what your 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 thinking process was going into it
4: Well one of the things I wanted to do was to show that there is a unifying idea behind all his books. I mean, I, I mentioned he wrote about 118 books. They're not all the same size. You know, some are kind of smaller pamphlets and all, but in general, that's still, that's still quite a bit. In fact, I remember one time I was in- interviewing him. I asked him if he intended to outright H.G. Wells, and he laughed. And, you know, I, I think he did want to do that.
2: Let's have more of this in our next segment. We're just getting into this rich remembrance of the subject of our discussion Colin Wilson with Gary Lockman and Gene and Chris, you're in The Pericast. The award-winning graphic converter, the universal genius for photo editing on your Mac. Join over one and a half million loyal users for this Swiss Army Knife photo editing app, it gives you all you expect from a top flight image editing app with tons of features, and most important, it's easy to use. Get 20% off from lemkesoft.de slash gene. That's L E M K E SOFT.de slash gene. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on this special deal at namecheap.com,
6: namecheap.com. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. As a doctor, I see patients every day who are losing their vision to age-related macular degeneration, also known as AMD. If you have blurry vision or blind spots, they can be symptoms of AMD, and if untreated, could lead to blindness. The good news, AMD can be managed with effective clinically approved treatments that may reverse some vision loss. For free AMD information, contact the Foundation Fighting Blindness at 1-800-BLINDNESS. That's 1-800-BLINDNESS. There is a cure in sight. Hi, this is Ted
8: Anderson. Investment Rarities, a 43-year-old company, has created the best silver offer ever. Get a U.S. Silver Eagle, Canadian Maple Leaf, Austrian Philharmonic, OPM Pure Bar, and Silver Round. Have all five for $99 postpaid. You heard me right, five ounces of silver below cost. No credit card fees, free shipping. Just $99 and you'll have a great start on what it takes to survive even the worst economic storm. Act now and receive Jim Cook's exclusive paper explaining how it's possible to make a fortune in silver today. Don't miss this opportunity. Call 800-328-1860. Read how the above-ground supply of silver has dropped below even gold. The secret is being suppressed. The price could explode at any time. Call today at 800-328-1860. Get 5 ounces of silver for only $99. Find them on the web at investmentrarities.com or call 800-328-1860. Call now before it's too late, 800-328-1860.
1: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
2: Now, as our listeners probably realize, I have not followed Colin Wilson all that much. I was aware of him, read some of his stuff over the years. And so I'm sitting here listening to Gary Lockman, learning a lot about this guy. Fascinating that he covered such a wide range of subjects. Now, it's interesting here when I look at the review in the Washington Post of your book, there's an interesting sentence here. And obviously the person who wrote this is a skeptic about a lot of this. He said, how could anyone actually treat dousing UFOs and alien abduction seriously now the reason i brought this out is because obviously on the powercast we do treat ufos and alien abductions seriously maybe not as the way most people would explain them so to really digress here because there's so much ground to cover for a guy who wrote 118 books that we can't cover at all what (laughs) did colin wilson have to say about ufos and related stuff
4: well, it's it's it, that's an interesting story. Um, as often happens with professional writers, um, you know, people approach them and ask them if they'd be interested in writing a book about something. And um, Wilson had done um, a, ver- a very successful book uh, here in the uh, in the mid '90s uh, in the U- in the UK for Virgin Publications called From Atlantis to the Sphinx, which was about basically how old the Sphinx actually is and and um, trying to understand. Um, You know, the idea is that it may be much older than, than, um, you know, the conventional um, authorities would say. And um, that book did very well. So he was approached by his editor at Virgin and said, you know, would you like to do a book about UFOs, about alien abductions? And Wilson had to admit that he, this was something that he had just, you know, he hadn't paid much attention to. The books he remembered reading, like, were from the 50s. George Damsky, you know, um, his flights off to Venus and things of that sort. And, but, you know, being a professional, and as he says in his autobiographies, always oh, needing the money, uh, he said, yep, sure, that's, that's fine. And so um, he started to do the research. And one of the things that he discovered was that, uh, actually, this fellow he knew, John Mack, whose name you probably remember, he, he had met him before, but not in the context of his work on the abduction phenomenon. Mac had written a book about T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. And, and Lawrence of Arabia featured in Wilson's book, The Outsider. He was one of these eccentric characters that, that he wrote about. And so uh, he was surprised to see this book by Mac when he started doing all this research. And then he read Mac's book, heard his story and all that, and he became convinced that, well, you know, I don't know exactly what's going on here, But something is going on here, as our our recent uh, Nobel Prize winner once said in a song a long time ago, you know, something's going on here, but we don't know exactly what it is. Wilson investigated, as he he did with all his books, he he gathers all the research material he can, he makes a big pile of it around himself, and he reads through all of it, and he interviews people he can about this sort of thing, and then thinks about it a great deal, and comes to some kind of conclusion. And he really did, he really came to the conclusion that something's going on with these abduction episodes. We don't know if it's actually people being picked up and brought into some, you know, nuts and bolts flying saucer. But his take on it it was much more along the lines of, say, Jacques Vallée, uh, in the sense that there is some kind of strange interdimensional sort of thing that is linked to older stories about, you know, fairies or uh, the small people or a variety of different kinds of experiences in the past of things in the sky and so on, um, that our current view of these things, or or the current view at the time, say, you know, um, from the 40s up until the 50s and 60s about actual kind of crafts flying from other planets coming here, is part of this narrative, this kind of story, but actually it's something more than that, something psychic, something to do with consciousness. And his conclusion in all this is that he really feels that these experiences that people are going through and these abduction things, as weird and crazy and absolutely absurd as they as they sound. And, I mean, myself, I too hadn't kept up with a lot of literature about it. I, I, a good friend of mine here, Mark Pilkington in the U.K., has written about the UFO experience and, and did a film about it. And so what I knew about
3: it you know, kind of came from him. Yeah, Mark's um, a great guy, super guy. Hmm. We've had him on the show. I, I really him. Oh,
4: so you know who he is. So there you go. Uh, oh, so, yeah. But Wilson came to the conclusion that some kind of... Experiment in the sense of trying to alter people's consciousness, get them ready for some kind of change, some kind of shift in the overall evolution of consciousness on the planet, in in a way, to to put it, you know, kind of grandly, um, is is, is involved in this. And again, you know, um, he saw it more in terms of a kind of experience with our consciousness, a kind of widening, expanding, deepening of it to include things that are conventional Scientific, materialist, reductionist, whatever you want to call it, uh, point of view, just don't allow. So that was his kind of end sort of take on it. And one of the books that I followed up after I read his book called Alien Dawn, this came out in the early 90s, uh, a little bit later, Alien Dawn, late 90s, uh, about the UFO experience, was this wonderful novel called Miracle Visitors by a science fiction writer here called Ian Watson. And in many ways, I would say that novel is a better introduction to the whole abduction kind of experience than, than, you know, the kind of standard, you know, sort of nonfiction works about it. Because it it takes this whole notion of something happening in consciousness itself is involved in in these kinds of things.
2: Let me ask you here, because this is what you're saying is basically preaching to the choir here. But so many people interested in these subjects, they can't look beyond physical craft, physical aliens, kidnapping physical people and taking them through the window by levitation or whatever. Why are so many people, do you think, hung up on this? Is it because they just haven't really been exposed to the literature, or is it something that they're not able to accept a much more complicated solution or answer?
4: Well, I think this is something that you you can see throughout history, that there's a tendency in some people, perhaps most, to take things literally. That's how they can understand them. And then there's... Some others, perhaps a smaller group of people who can understand it, say, symbolically or metaphorically. And I don't mean to say, in saying this now, that the UFO experience is a metaphor or or a symbol, just that there are other ways of interpreting things. This is a theme, not in context of the UFO experience, but just in consciousness in general and how we understand our experience that I I, I write about in, in another book of mine called The Secret Teachers of the Western World which is more or less the kind of history of, of the West. Western consciousness is seen through the of esoteric view of things. And there really is, you can see, there really is a struggle at different times in Western history between, we can say, the literalists and the symbolists. People who want not only want to, but this is the only way they can understand things in a very simple, literal, nuts and bolts, matter-of-fact kind of way. And you get that both in religion and in science and in everything else. I mean, the people who believe, you know, the fundamentalists of whatever faith, who believe in the literal interpretation of their particular you know religious text they're like that and they've always throughout history they've always persecuted the people who can understand it in a symbolist or metaphoric or an analogical kind of way I think this is, <laughs> this is one of the real struggles and I think there's a history of that that needs to be written so yeah and, and also you know when I was a kid in in the 60s What I saw on Saturday morning, you know, sci fi or horror movies was all these great 50s sci fi movies about the flying saucers.
2: Let's talk a little bit more about the flying saucers before we move on. We've got Gene and Chris and Gary. You're in The
3: Pericas.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
8: Hi, this is Ted Anderson. I'm here to tell you about GCNtelecare.com, a team of board-certified doctors assisting you 24 hours a day, seven days a week,
13: Attention small business owners. Want to save money on your employee health insurance plan? Learn the little-known solution that could save thousands of dollars on your health insurance benefits and save your employees money, too. Call Health Markets for a free consultation, and one of our 3,000 local agents will show you how to make health care reform work for you. We'll design customized solutions for your business that can lower health care costs for you and your employees. We'll work directly with you to determine your needs. We search thousands of health plans from over 180 health insurance companies nationwide. You'll also find out if tax credits could save you money. Best of all, the service is free of charge. See why Health Markets has enrolled Americans in more than 2 million insurance policies. You don't have to wait for open
14: enrollment to lower your cost. Call now. Find out how much you and your employees could be saving. Representatives are standing by to assist you. Call
7: 800-930-5137. That's 800-930-5137. 800-930-5137. Will the government protect your family from Iran and North Korea's newest weapon, EMP? We buy guns to protect ourselves. Home, health, and car insurance for accidents. Maybe you also have food storage. But how would you keep your refrigerator running in a long-term EMP blackout? Using tested military designs, the Solark EMP hardened solar generator protects and powers your critical appliances for years without burying items underground or wrapping them in aluminum foil. Unlike other preps, Solark is used every day to
15: Back to the music in a minute, but first I've got a special free giveaway. I've got 100 free trials of the belly flattening breakthrough new biotics here. And I've been authorized to give them away to the station's first 100 callers right now. So if you want to see what you'd look like with a flatter belly, call now. Don't even wait till I stop talking. Only one free trial per caller, though. Don't be greedy. Okay, here's the number. 1-800-983-5628. I'm guessing it works pretty fast because it says here that if your belly flattening Results are too dramatic, you're supposed to reduce use to every other day. And it looks like it's made from natural ingredients, too, scientifically formulated to cleanse pounds of toxic sludge from your body. Okay, this is it. If you want a flatter belly, be one of the first 100 callers right now to claim one of these free trials. 1 800 983 5628. If lines are busy, try again. 1 800 983 5628. Call now for details. 1 800 983 5628.
16: This is Robert Hastings, author
14: of UFOs and Nukes, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal
5: radio.
2: So you recall, of course, watching TV in the New York area in, say, the 60s and 50s and seeing all the sci-fi stuff and seeing all those programs on TV. You're probably too young to remember this because you were born, what, in the mid-50s? So they used to have a character on TV named Captain Video and his Video Rangers, way before your time. And a lot of it was done live in New York, and they had real sci-fi writers sometimes writing the scripts. But they Mm -hmm. lost all the copies of the show, so you can't find it anymore. But Captain Video was like, you know, Captain Kirk. You're not quite as wacky, but...
4: Well, I I tell you, the first thing I remember watching on television was a cartoon called Colonel Bleep. That I don't know. I mean, I found it on YouTube again, but it is, it is the strangest, most surreal thing. And if you go back, you look at the stuff that one was watching when you're young. It's amazing how weird it is. But uh, no, I mean, I, 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 you know, I grew up. Um, yeah, I mean, I said Earth versus the flying saucers, the day the Earth stood still, you know, um, it came from outer space. All these wonderful 50s, black and white. Um, you know, uh, sci-fi films, uh, and then with Earth versus Flying Saucers, you have Ray Harryhausen's fantastic um, animation and all that. But that, but that, but that was kind of the, you know, that was sort of the, you know, the, the idea that, that what these were about. And one of the first ones to kind of question whether they were nuts and bolts or or, or or something more psychic was Jung, Carl Jung. You know, the 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 second most famous psychologist in the world. Right,
3: his last book.
4: Yeah, the flying saucers, um, a myth of things seen in the sky. And he thought because the saucers were round in shape mostly, uh, although, you know, obviously this is cigar shape, the ones and all that kind of thing, that these were somehow kind of, well, as I I said in a few books of mine, they were mandalas from outer space. And mandalas are these Tibetan sort of, you know, magic circles um, that um are used in meditation
3: well it's a symbol of transformation
4: yeah and and and, and Jung himself in his in his research and in his work with his clients found that these these were spontaneously you know produced by the unconscious uh, at different times both both as a kind of reaction to you know periods of crisis and stress in in the individual and a kind of goal, a kind right. of target you, you moved yourself toward but Jung felt that um, the whole phenomena of, of, of the you know flying saucers uh, from you know uh, what's his name um, Kenneth uh, uh, God, I remember, uh, I remember his name. Kenneth Arnold Kenneth Arnold 1947 and all that on to when Jung was writing say in the late 50s that these were a product of the kind of schizophrenia that the whole world had found itself in where you have the two superpowers um, you know fa- facing off. The planet was experiencing this kind of crisis of, of, of split personality and was projecting humanity en masse, was projecting these images of wholeness up into the sky. And so this is kind of the beginning, at least in, in, in a broadly popular um, way, of this notion that actually, you know, maybe the flying saucers aren't real, you know, ships from some place. Maybe they've got something to do with some inner world of, of our own that's that's being projected out there. And well, obviously, where you talk, do you come from? LA, people like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, God, you know, the planets that we know are very close to us, there ain't nothing much happening there. And it's really far away to anything else. So I kind of think it's got something more to do with just consciousness in some way. And in some strange way, I think consciousness itself, something that we are led to believe by conventional science and, you know, the pundits who people are supposed to know, is just a kind of little pool of awareness that is... In, in each of our individual skulls. No, I, I think it has a much broader existence and it, it, it exists as some kind of field at large. And I think it's kind of, you know, I don't know, you know, kind of testing us in some ways, you know. So like, are we, a, a able, are, are, are we able, you know, a, you know a, a friend, someone recently, you know, just said to me like, my God, what's happening in the world? You know, we have Syria, everyone's fighting everybody else and they don't quite know who they're shooting at anymore. Uh, so many things seem to be cracking up and breaking down and coming apart and barriers between things are you know, being permeated and, and the whole world seems a real mess. And i like saying, yeah, this is happening. It's like this are being tested, you know, and the, the other entities out in the universe, you know, the other in, in, intelligent beings, they're waiting to see if we can tie our own shoes, you know, before they're going to get in touch with us.
2: Yeah. yeah, but do you honestly think there is some external force that is watching over us? and that will act in any way positive or negative, the way we're just messing ourselves up? Does anyone else even care? Even if we had physical beings from another star system that came down here and they looked at us, would they just see in themselves another species going through this nonsense and maybe not surviving? Or would they act or would anybody even care? I don't think they care.
4: I don't know. You know, I mean... I guess this is kind of litmus test about your general attitude towards life. You know, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, who do we have? The smartest guy in the world, Stephen Hawking, telling us, no, 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 don't try to contact the aliens because they're just going to come here and enslave us. Yeah,
3: careful but, what you wish for.
4: <laughs> but Nobody pays attention to him anymore. Right. You know, because he's saying wacky things now. All right. So he's a scientist who we revere, but he's starting to say wacky things. So we don't pay so much attention to him anymore. Um, I don't know. I kind of do, well, one of the things that Wilson, and you said his novels, At, at this, this, this novel, The Mind Parasites, which you said was about these psychic vampires in the mind. Um, there's a group of people who learn how to overcome them. And through the process of doing that, they, they powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal man that had, had, yet, oh, been, don't say had that. yet been available to them. Uh, become available, and they are able somehow. This is a science fiction novel. This is a novel. They they're able to go out in and in, out, out into space and leave the Earth and all that. And at the very rim of our solar system, they be, they come into contact with another kind of intelligence out there. And basically, they're offered, you know, you can come with us, you know, and you know we we can sort of show you, you know, what, what's up actually <laughs> out here, uh, and. Actually, the hero declines because he wants to learn for himself. He wants to develop for himself. So I tend to think, think, yes, I think there is, how should we say it? In general, I think that there's a grain to the universe and it slowly moves towards the good, but it's a long road to hoe. Things are very difficult. And people say diamond is the hardest material in the world. No, it isn't. Human inertia is the most difficult, most resistant material. In the known universe, and we've been working on that for thousands of years. You know, and you know, look what happened to Jesus. Look what happened to Buddha. All these guys. So it's a long road to hoe. But I do think. Oh, well, I was going to say it's it's something like the Watcher, if you know the Watcher from the old Marvel comics. Sure. He was this supremely intelligent, powerful being, but he had taken a vow never to interfere um, in the affairs of other of other species, much like Star Trek's, you know, the Prime Directive, that kind of thing. But he kind of he can kind of help a little bit. He can kind of do a little bit. He can kind of arrange things, and in fact, it's through his imaginations that the Fantastic Four eventually, you know, can defeat Galactus in this epic, epic uh, series of, of issues um, in about the mid '60s, maybe 44 to 49 of the Fantastic Four. So it's something like that. I mean, I was going to say that's another big influence on me, along with horror films and science fiction movies and Lovecraft and all that. Is is the Marvel comics? I I, I actually belong to the Merry Marvel Marching Society.
2: Oh, please. Nobody is still a member of that. What about Dr. Strange? Because that gets into all the mysticism stuff. Dr. Strange, what were the influences there?
4: Oh, my God. I mean, there you go. I mean, Steve Ditko. Um, I mean, I'm glad he finally... Got some of the credit that he deserved, like Jack Kirby. Not to say Stan Lee shouldn't get the credit, but he seemed to get more in many ways. Uh, there was more on his plate than than the other guys. But no, Steve Steve Ditko is a weird character because you know he was into Ayn Rand. Is is he still alive? I don't I don't, I don't really know. Maybe I shouldn't speak in the past tense. But he he was a big reader of Ayn Rand, and this was one of the reasons why he he left marvel and other places because you know he had these 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 uh, values and principles that he wouldn't wouldn't compromise just but to stop Dr. here Strange before
2: we comes. break we're going to break in a second
4: steve ditko
2: born in johnstown pennsylvania he's age 88 oh he's alive he's still alive look stan lee is what in his 90s i and know, he's, I know. Still, and he's still making cameos in all the shows we've got uh-huh. gary lockman and it's not just about comic books Okay, but you have to think about cultural influences. With Gene and Chris, you're in.
4: The Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
2: We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy T shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the PowerCast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour.
10: Why be held hostage by your wireless carrier for two years? What if you had no contract, no activation fees, no hidden costs, tracking, tracing, harvesting customer data, or draconian gimmicks? All on America's largest 4G, LTE, GSM, and Sprint networks. Introducing PIX Wireless. Activate your Sprint, AT&T, or unlock GSM phones with PIX. And choose from an arsenal of monthly plans or build your own. Starting at only two ninety nine per month. Get connected now. Call or click 1-866-205-9513. Or PixWireless.com, spelled P-I-X-Wireless.com. Pick picks and get connected today.
11: Want to build a maintenance-free, low and slow charcoal briquette fire that burns for hours? For free, MeatMastersRadio.com will show you how to build a low-temp charcoal fire that's guaranteed fiddle-proof. It's easy and free. MeatMastersRadio.com teaches charcoal barbecue skills on new topics every week. Go to MeatMastersRadio.com. That's MeatMastersRadio.com.
8: You've seen crazy diets to lose weight?
11: Has neck, back, or shoulder pain got you down? Go to sunshine-pillows.com and get soothing comfort, support, and pain relief fast. Their microwavable heat therapy pillows and wraps treat neck and shoulder pain, reduce stress, and relax the soul. An ergonomic pillow from Sunshine Pillows supports your head and neck on long trips or when simply resting at home. Be good to yourself. Visit sunshine-pillows.com. sunshine-pillows.com.
4: This
14: is Micah Hanks of The Grayling Report, and you're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
2: Hey, I like that. You know, we're probably going to recruit you.
4: Okay. Right.
2: I want to ask you just briefly, you mm-hmm. are a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? Yep. Now, how does that work out because you left the band... Before they became famous, but then you rejoin them for a
3: tour. Well, oh, he so left it- before they had a record deal.
4: Well, they did their homework. I mean, I tell you the truth, when friends got in touch with me, this is 10 years ago now, this happened in 2006, friends got in touch with me and told me, hey, Gary, you know, Blondie's being inducted to the Rock, Roll Hall of Fame, and you're included. I said, "Yeah, no, you got to be kidding. You know, I mean, you know, I had made my contribution. It is not negligible, but it is small. I recognize that. But no, they did their homework. But it turned out to be a scandal at the time. And I'll I'll use up a couple minutes just telling the story where it was at the World of Astoria, 2006. And they have the the you know the um, the ceremony and all that kind of thing. But Debbie, she didn't really want to share, as far as I understand, you know, the podium or anything else with ex-members, and she didn't want to have anything to do with us and any, any of that kind of thing. But I have to hand it to the Rockwell Hall of Fame people. They did their homework. They knew the right thing to do. And somebody at the, at, at that evening got myself. Frank Infante uh, and Nigel aside and said look you know no matter what happens you guys are up there we'll get you up there you know we're not going to allow this to happen where you don't take part in this and so we were up there but it was kind of like you know the stage ain't big enough for all of us (laughs) kind of attitude once we get up there and everyone has you know a few minutes to kind of say their thing and thank everybody and all that and um, at one point, Frank Infante, who's another guy from Jersey, Jersey Jersey contribute, contributed immensely to the New York rock scene. I have to say that. He said to Debbie, oh, come on, Deb, you know, for old time's sake, can't we just all like play a tune together? And she said, no, Frank, can't you see I brought my band with me? And he said, your band? I thought Blondie was getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the place went quiet. And they, they, all this is being filmed, you know, for television and all that. And it's this big, you know, this big ballroom in, in the Waldorf Astoria. And nobody knew what was going on. Everyone thought oh, this was a joke. And then they realized, actually, this is like family feud. This <laughs> It's like really nasty stuff happening here. You know, she wouldn't let us play and all that. And uh, that was the scandal of the evening. The other scandal of the evening was the sex pistols. They were supposed to be inducted. But instead of showing up, Johnny Lydon, John Lydon or Johnny Rotten just sent a um, a letter saying, you know, we piss on the Rockwell hall of fame. You guys are full of, I guess is, is, was that a four letter word? I'm sorry. But the next day in all the gossip columns, they were saying about Debbie, you know, heart of crass or something like that because you know, oh. she, 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 well, you know, it, it was kind of like, she just made it so obvious that, you know, she wasn't interested in the rest of the guys, but I, Hey, you know what? I never thought I'd ever get there. So what can I say? You know, I
3: mean, my, my, you know, my, my, my well, place. congratulations. You're out of 500 guests. You're our first standing or first member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to be on our show. There you go. You well, may right. be
2: the last one, but we're certainly happy to have you aboard. <laughs> Let me just ask you a final question before we go back to UFOs and the occult and Colin Wilson and everything. Are you at all in touch with any existing or former members of Blondie anymore, or is that just no. all over with?
4: No, I mean, no, to put it that way. I mean, there was some acrimonious, and then there's all the usual things that happens, you know, money disputes and things like that, and royalties and so on and so on. But no, I'm, I'm, I ha- the last time I saw any of them was 10 years ago when we did the Rocker Hall of Fame. So that was it. Uh, but you know,
3: well, Jimmy and Clem always seem to be really, really, you know, just kind of aw shucks kind of guys. Clem, a little less so, but Jimmy was sweetheart.
4: Yeah, no, they're all nice. I mean, Clem, Clem, I went to high school with. I, I used yeah. to, ca- I, I carried Clem's drums into like the the school dance somewhere, you know. Um, so, I mean, I, I I know him. God, how old am I now? I'm not going to tell you for real, but you know, I know him for a really long time. Uh, but you know, things happen, and I, I don't ha- I don't hold any hard hard you know hard feelings or anything like that. Um, and you know, the the little what should we say the little digs I I, I took not at him but at, at Chris and Debbie are, are in. Um, my book, New York rocker. So it's a good read. It's, it's,
3: it's a really good read about the time and it tells you what that time was like. I just ordered it by the way. Oh, there you go. There you go. All right. I just, I just, as we've been on the show here, I went ahead and, and I've been meaning to do it for a while. And and today was a perfect opportunity to do it and not forget.
4: It's probably like a penny or something on Amazon these days. Oh no,
3: no. (laughs) The used copies are up there, but, um, Uh, it's more than that, but one thing I must say before we we move on is, you know, I have known a number of people mm-hmm. that have, you know, made it in various fields, and success does change people, and mm-hmm. it it does place friendships in. Sometimes an uncomfortable new place um, oftentimes uncomfortable for the people that are dealing with someone that's that's yeah. become successful which which kind of makes the problem doubly bad because then that puts more more um, tension and stress into the relationship uh, that you know maybe shouldn't even have to be there to begin with and you know i I can say that you know Debbie was notoriously um you know kind of diva-ish in her own way and and uh, you know it's amazing that uh, that Chris and, and her were able to last as business partners as long as they did and still remain friends um, as not to mention having a very very close and heavy relationship for many years uh, and you know with Chris almost dying and stuff and, and oh, yeah. debbie sticking by him and you know so you gotta you gotta admire him for that but success changes people
4: I mean, mean, at at different times, you know, I mean, it was a long stretch when I wasn't involved in that world for writing. And I lived in L.A. and I was actually I was working at a metaphysical bookshop. It's not there anymore. A place called the Bodhi Tree.
3: Oh, the Bodhi Tree. Yeah.
4: So it was very well known. And they were in town recording and they came into the shop to say hello and to invite me down to the recording session. And I wound up singing back, backup vocals in some track called Bad Boys. I forget which album it's on but you know That's it's like cool. god you know everybody in the shop is like oh my god look who's here and all that kind of thing but no i mean but you know it, it, you're right it, it does things do change things happen and it's 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 the standard kind of story where you're all friends and banded together in the early days when you're in the trenches and you're you're struggling and you're starving and you're making it happen and then the suits show up and then they dangle success before your eyes and then all that kind of stuff happens. So I, I have no regrets. Uh, in fact, Chris Stein saved my life once. I tell the story in New York Rocker. It was in this loft we were living in. And the short the short version is they picked up a lamp once and there was a short in it and I was being electrocuted. And I couldn't move and I couldn't speak and I couldn't do anything and I couldn't let go of the lamp. Had he not walked out of the back of the, the loft and seen what was happening and casually walked over and just pulled the plug, who knows where I would be today? So I have to thank thank him for that. So no matter what happens.
2: So after that, maybe today he'd say, you know, I should not have done that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Serves me right for getting the getting the free electricity from the liquor store anyway. But you know,
3: right? Well, uh, hopefully that grounded you, Gary.
4: (laughs) I was shaking. That's (laughs) good.
3: Okay, getting back to the uh, the subject at hand, uh, Colin Wilson, and uh, the daunting task of of attempting to to
4: uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry,
3: but I did ask a question before Gene kind of interrupted us, and we went to break. Um, I was real interested to know how um, you know what prompted you to tackle such a uh, you know such a monumental task. I mean, uh, that's no. No easy feat. I can't think of many writers that it would be more difficult to try to uh, uh, really get inside their heads and and uh, present the reader with you know a coherent look at. Sure. Such a, a kaleidoscope of subjects that he he covered. Uh, there, there were, as you mentioned, threads that wound through most of his work, but but just the, the sheer output and the sheer depth of brilliance. And uh, the guy really did have a, a, a very unique way of of looking sure. at uh, people, places, and things and, and events. And and uh, I, <laughs> you know, I'm just very curious of of how you convinced yourself to go ahead and tackle that. Or maybe you were just uh, bribed by your uh, your publisher and they said, do a book about this <laughs> no, guy. No, no, I
4: mean, no, I mean it, it was a labor of love, really, because, as I said, you know, his books got me on all of this in the first place. And then um, I start the book with telling a story of how I made this pilgrimage uh, down to where he lived in Cornwall. And um, that was 1983. And uh, I had already, by that time, um... Read lots of his books. Been in and out of rock and roll. Was enjoying this wonderful couple years I had when I left uh, music, uh, and my song Presence dear had 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 done you know very well. So I actually you know had some income from the royalties, and I, I could do what I wanted basically for a, a, a time. And what I did was read a lot. Tried tried to write, which I didn't was wasn't very good at at that point. And then I traveled, and a friend of mine. We went to Europe on this kind of mini-search for the miraculous, and we went to places like um, Chartres Cathedral, Notre-Dame de Paris.
2: We're going to have more on the search for the miraculous, but we have to have this miraculous announcement. With Gary, Jean, and Chris, you're in the
3: Pericast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN.
0: Diabetes is at war with your circulatory system. Fight back with Cardivite. Cardivite is a dietary supplement containing powerful herbs for circulation and healthy cardiac function. Improve your energy, stamina, and mental acuity. Reduce swelling, cold hands, and risk of amputation. Get your blood flowing with Cardivite. This five-star rated product was developed by a diabetic pharmacist and is available online at www.getbloodflowing.com. That's www.getbloodflowing.com.
6: There is an affordable alternative to the high cost of health care that offers freedom from insurance while providing compliance with the Obamacare individual mandate. Imagine having access to quality, affordable health care that allows you the freedom to choose your doctor and hospital. Members can share up to 100% of necessary medical expenses, including some alternative treatments. Find out how you and your family can contain health care costs without giving up your freedom. Go to libertyoncall.org. That's libertyoncall.org.
1: Welcome back to the Paracast The gold standard of paranormal radio And now, here's Gene Steinberg
2: That was our miraculous announcement We've got one more for you We have a second radio show after the Paracast If you want to hear that show, you've got to be a member of the Paracast Plus at plus.theparacast.com. That's where you get all the information. We give you the commercial-free version of this show. Lots of benefits for a modest subscription rate. Our price, cheap. Plus.theparacast.com. Miraculous times with Gary Lockman. Go ahead, please.
4: Yeah, so I was saying it was 1983. I, I, I was in Europe with a friend of mine. And we were on this kind of mini-search of the miraculous, and we went to places like Chart Cathedral in, in France. And we also found in Fontainebleau, which is outside of Paris, where Gurdjieff, this esoteric teacher from the 20s and 30s I mentioned earlier, had, had this institute of the harmonious development of man. So we found this place where he, he had it in, in the forest in Fontainebleau, and we went to Glastonbury and Stonehenge and so on. But someplace I wanted to go, part of the the, the this Search of my own was to go meet Colin Wilson. And he lived, as I said before, he had moved down to the very end, uh, the westernmost tip of of England in Cornwall in the late 50s. And when I went down there in 1983, um, he was very friendly. Someone had given me his phone number. I forget exactly how I got it. Somebody, probably a bookseller in London. And I called him from a phone box in Penzance, and he was very friendly, and said, "Yes, please come by, and yes, yes, you can stay. You know, you can stay the night, and all that." And then I went there, and had this wonderful evening with him, where he, he was explaining his ideas about consciousness to me, and how it relates to you know different areas of existentialism and other philosophy. I really felt at the end of a heavily wine-fueled evening that I had grasped it. You know, I, I really had got my hands around it. But the next morning when I woke up, it had slipped through my fingers. And then I carried on a correspondence with him after that. What had happened was that he became a kind of mentor you know, for me. He was a, I, I was a fan, became an acquaintance, then a friend. I visited him different times down in Cornwall. Whenever he would come to LA, where I was living at the time, to give a talk or something, we would meet up. At one point, he actually stayed with me when I was house-sitting in this wonderful place that I call the Zen Castle up in the Hollywood Hills. It was... Um, Owned by one of one of the owners of the Bodhi Tree, this metaphysical bookshop I worked in, and they were on holiday and they asked me to house it, and, and I did. And Wilson was coming there to uh, give a talk, and I said, "Well, why don't you, you know, you, why don't you stay with with me?" And I have this this great huge place. So he did. So I got to know him very well, and his ideas really influenced all of my own books, um, all of my own ideas. And I, I think I've made that pretty clear in my books over the years. But I didn't feel I could write a full length book about him, basically, until he passed away. And I don't feel he obliged me by (laughs) by doing that so that I I could actually write the book. But when it actually happened, I mean, I don't say it so much in the book itself, but I wrote an article about this, that when I heard about his passing, I, I was in Amsterdam or I was in the Netherlands, I was giving a talk at a conference there. And then when it was confirmed that, you know, he had died, I, I really felt bereft. I was, I was really, I felt like a hole, you know, that, that kind of emotional intensity that, that you feel about people that are very close to you. And uh, that's how I felt. And other people knew him as well. I mean, I wasn't the only one. He had, he had many, many fans. Many, many people visited him. That their home down in Cornwall was a kind of site, of pilgrimage for many people. And he knew lots and lots of people. So I, I wasn't in an exceptional case in any way. But there was just something about his ideas that really grabbed me. And what I wanted to do in the book was to show, actually, there is one linchpin holding together all the different books he writes about crime. He wrote much, much, much about crime. He wrote wonderful books about crime, history of crime. Fantastic book called The Criminal History of Mankind, which you could devote a whole episode to, uh, about the occult, about the paranormal, about literature, about philosophy, about psychology, about sex, and so many other things. But there's a single kind of thing that holds it all together, and it's this question of freedom and what he calls, at the beginning of the occult, the paradoxical nature of freedom. Now, freedom is something that, when it's threatened, we know exactly how valuable it is and how important it is, and we will fight tooth and nail, body and soul, to hold on to it or to regain it. But the weird thing about us is that once the crisis has passed, once we have regained the freedom again, we invariably— against our best efforts, slip into this kind of taking it for granted. We we kind of lose hold of why it's important. And this is the existential dilemma. This is why we go through life, most of our lives, in this kind of half-asleep state. And it's only when crisis faces us or some other you know shocking, demanding kind of thing that we kind of wake up and say, oh my God, Like, what's really happening here? What's going on with that? that that's what he devoted his, his mind to in trying to un- analyze in all these different books. And he came up with the way he felt was... A means of kind of working against this kind of inner lethargy, this kind of inner boredom, this kind of devaluing of our experience that we that, that that we unconsciously perform all the time, and that's what I wanted to get across to 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 the readers of my book.
3: You know, freedom is something that, uh, at least in this country, is. Uh, number one people really don't understand what it means and even if they did they'd still be in that place of uh, taking it for granted not really uh, appreciating uh, the wonderful freedoms that we still have in this country even though (laughs) they're being degraded uh, daily and we're we're seeing some real disturbing movement towards more of an authoritarian you know system but but that's a very good point. Uh, I never really thought of his work. I, I, I understand completely what you're saying, but as a unifying principle, it's a little bit eye-opening for me to to hear that um, that that actually echoed throughout his work. Which, of course, sure. I'm not totally familiar with. I've only read maybe ten of his sure. books, maybe eight, ten. So that that's a very good point, and I do think it, it's a point that should be underscored in, in you know what may be the cusp of. Uh, <laughs> interesting times that might feature a little less freedom than uh, we're used to. Mm, mm,
4: mm. No, this is true. I mean, I'm, I'm saying the, the idea when it's something when freedom is something that's physically threatened, we all know how important it is. Uh, he, he, in the beginning of the, the occult, he, he, he says about how, you know, when the tanks rolled into Warsaw or something like that. Everyone knew exactly what freedom was, and it was very clear and clean. And he says it's something, it it, it was rather like the silver that someone, a burglar, was coming to steal. You know, we we knew it was something we wanted. But when we don't have that threat, it all becomes kind of misty and vague. So you have these characters, these existential characters, like Mirceau in Camus' book, The, The Stranger, who sort of sleepwalks through this whole life that he has. And he somehow, through no actual... Decision of his own winds up shooting, you know, somebody on the, on this beach, and then is finds himself in prison and about to be kind of executed for murder. That and he's 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 sleptwalked through everything. It's only at the very end where the reality of his situation has come to him that he actually feels the kind of intensity of being. And this is the kind of thing that Wilson is really. This is what attracted him to Gurdjieff. and other kind of philosophers of this. It's this kind of sense of being. He he, he likes to quote from. German philosopher Martin Heidegger, this phrase, the triviality of everydayness, the yeah. kind of everyday routine kind of blunts our appreciation of everything. This is why he wrote about crime a lot. He said a lot A lot of criminals, in fact, a lot of murders take place because the person perpetrating them has so dull a sense of their own being that they need some kind of radical act to kind of feel alive. For the, the few seconds that, you know, this violence erupts in them, they feel a kind of intensity of being that they never felt their whole life. Now, of course, it's, it's more than unfortunate. It's tragic. It's horrific that they're driven to this, but again, the same kind of things that say, he, he talks about, I mentioned earlier Herman Hesse. One of the great examples of this is Hesse's novel Steppenwolf, which was, you know, very big in the late sixties and seventies. And obviously the band Steppenwolf took their name from it and all that. And the Steppenwolf character is someone who has external freedom. He doesn't have obligations and responsibilities. He has enough money to live on his own. He could do what he wants. He can spend his days reading or listening to music or anything like that. But he feels this encroaching kind of boredom and ennui coming over him all the time. And and his freedom becomes a burden. And if you know the novel, the beginning of it, he's walking around you know, deciding when to go back home, when to slit his throat. But what happens is that he stops at a calf, a cafe, has a glass of wine, and suddenly this kind of experience happens to him, this freedom experience we can have. Suddenly he's reminded of his freedom. It becomes real to him again. We all really have this freedom. Our problem is that we don't really grab that we have it most of the time. We tend to need some kind of crisis, some kind of threat, something to shock us into feeling it. And Wilson wanted to find a way to be able to do that without having to go through these inordinate you know, means of doing it, like the threat of suicide. And he always tells the story of the of writer Graham Greene, who as a teenager felt this excruciating boredom.
2: We've got Gary Lockman and Gene and Chris. You're in The ParaCast. The award-winning graphic converter, the universal genius for photo editing on your Mac. Join over one and a half million loyal users for this Swiss Army Knife photo editing app. It gives you all you expect from a top flight image editing app with tons of features, and most important, it's easy to use. Get 20% off from lemkesoft.de slash gene. That's L E M K E SOFT.de slash gene. As you know, neighbors, web hosting can be pretty cheap. Will the government protect your family from Iran and North Korea's
7: newest weapon, EMP? We buy guns to protect ourselves, home, health and car insurance for accidents. Maybe you also have food storage, but how would you keep your refrigerator running in a long-term EMP blackout? Using tested military designs, the Solark EMP-hardened solar generator protects and powers your critical appliances for years without burying items underground or wrapping them in aluminum foil. Unlike other preps, Solark is used every day to help offset your electric bill automatically. Visit PortableSolarLLC.com to learn how easily expandable the system is. Solark is the most affordable and powerful solution on the market. The whole system even fits in the back of a pickup or SUV and can install in. Less than an hour. See for yourself why Solark beats other off-grid systems at PortableSolarLLC.com. Don't wait for the government. Go to PortableSolarLLC.com to learn why Solark is energy insurance for your family.
17: You're fired. According to the Small Business Administration, 75% of small businesses plan to eliminate jobs or reduce workers' hours to part-time. You're fired. According to Gallup, the unemployment rate recently jumped to nearly 9%, and the underemployment rate hit a staggering 17.9%. You're fired. One out of three young adults and one out of two recent college graduates are underemployed. Hello, I'm Keith Abel, a pharmacist and a home business entrepreneur. In 2011, I became one of those statistics myself. Instead of looking for another job in corporate America, I joined Dr. Joel Wallet, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy. We're creating steady incomes for ourselves and would like to show you how to do the same. If you want to supplement your current income, replace your income, so you don't have to become one of the statistics, then give me a call toll-free at 866-257-3105. 866-257-3105. You're fired. Don't wait till you hear those words. Start creating an extra income today. 866-257-3105.
1: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
2: We're immersed in a lot of fascinating discussions here for the final three segments of the Paracast with Gary Lockman talking about Colin Wilson and so many different subjects to get into. Go ahead, please.
4: I was gonna say, I was telling you the story of, of the writer Graham Greene, as a famous British writer. Uh, when he was a teenager, he he suffered this excruciating boredom so badly that um he was driven to play Russian roulette. He, he he came across a revolver that his older brother had stashed away somewhere. And what he did was that he took the revolver, he put one bullet in, you know, one of the chambers, spun the whole thing, and um put it to his head, and then when the hammer clicked on an empty chamber and he didn't blow his brains out, he suddenly had this enormous experience of well-being, and everything suddenly became interesting. Everything that he was bored to tears with five minutes ago suddenly became infinitely interesting to him. From that, Wilson concludes that what would had happened? The world didn't change, it was always there. The infinite possibilities that Green was able to suddenly see had always been there. He was blind to them. Why was he blind to them? Well, because his consciousness had been so dull, it had been so limp. It was as if he was trying to pick up things, you know, with his hands just like covered in butter. You know, he couldn't grab hold of anything. And suddenly, the threat of instant annihilation wakes him up, and he kind of, he kind of, you know, does this kind of concentration. And suddenly, that's what happens. So Wilson is basically trying to say, like, well, yes, we, we are all like gray and green in some way. We all under, un- undervalue our experience, and it's only under threat that we can feel its true value. Is there some way we can feel that true value without putting a gun to our head? That's what his philosophy is about.
3: Wow. Uh, another thing that I'm, I'm seeing here, looking through this incredible list of books uh, authored by Wilson, he, he did quite a number of biographies, and um, there seems to be a pretty consistent thread uh, throughout the biographies, of, that kind of dovetail with his interests that he would address, um, you know, in his other books. Um, Do you have any particular favorites uh, that you could recommend to our listeners? Because when we have an author on who's done a biography of someone as prolific as as Wilson, Mm -hmm. it's always good to give people, if they're interested, uh, a sense of where's a good starting point. And I think some of the biographies might be a good place for people to kind of get into into his writing style and uh, his thinking.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, he he wrote biographies of Bernard Shaw, and he wrote a biography of Rudolf Steiner. So that gives you a kind of you know idea of, of of his range. I mean, Bernard Shaw was one of the great you know playwrights of the uh, early early 20th century. He's not he's not quite as revered as he was at one point, but he was a world famous kind of figure. Rudolf Steiner um, is uh, an Austrian um, kind of polymath who uh, developed this, um, depending on how you look at it, you know, rather strange uh, spiritual philosophy, and is also. He's also behind many of the Waldorf or Steiner schools that right, are this right. alternative education. Wilson was always attracted to ideas, and he was attracted to the people who had the ideas and how they faced the kind of challenges that he talks about in his book, The Outsider. Mm. And he's very interested in people's development, how they face you know, the development of, of growing, the challenges life presents to, to you. Do you recoil from them? Do you embrace them? Do you run away from them? Do, do you run into them head on? So he wrote, Uh, books about people like Jung, Gurdjieff, Uspensky, who was Gurdjieff's kind of lieutenant. And I've written a biography of as well, because I think he deserves more credit than than he gets in most of the books written about Gurdjieff and all of that. Uh, He did a biography of Wilhelm Reich.
3: A very good one, too, I might add.
4: Yeah, exactly. Steiner, uh, Alistair Crowley. He's mostly interested in people and their ideas. And I mean, reading one of his biographies, it's as much a book about Wilson on these people than it is you know, wholly about them. So you get, obviously get his take, but he's always engaging with their ideas. And what he does is he engages, he engages with them in a kind of discussion. You know, they're not around anymore, obviously, to talk with them. Perhaps now uh, when they're all in, in the next Bardo, they're all kind of you know, banging it out amongst themselves and you know, having, a, having a good old uh, um, conversation there. This is one of the things I, I've always liked about his writing. I think one of the best things he does is write about other writers, write about other thinkers, because he really tries to understand what they're saying, what, what they're proposing, and then he, he he meets it with his own, his, with his own ideas. Um, but I, I would say if someone coming to Wilson for the first time, if you really want to get a flavor of what he, he's like, the occult is a very good start, or the yeah. follow-up yeah. that came out in the late 70s called Mysteries which was, well, the occult is a kind of history of the occult and takes you back and right. you know, starts sort of Stone Age and brings you up to contemporary times. Mysteries was about what was happening then. Right. Uh, the my,
3: my first two Wilson books. <laughs> Funny you yeah, should there mention. you order. I,
4: mean, <laughs> I, I mean, when I was on that little mini-Search for the Miraculous that I, I mentioned earlier, that was that was the one book I had with me, was Mysteries. Because at the time, I was got really into earth magic and ley lines and, and, you know, standing stones and all that. That was very popular at that point. And uh, I went around to all these sites with, with that book because he he devotes a few chapters to that kind of thing, uh, but there's so much in there, he, you know, out of the body experiences, the tarot, magic, ESP. He just was he just brought everything together, and his books are kind of encyclopedia of both the the, the subject and also what people were thinking about about it at the time, and yeah. I think he's really responsible in many ways for making it making it uh, uh, at the time in early seventies a respectable um, you know, s- uh, subject of, of study. Because you have people like, say, Arthur Kessler, who was a well-known political writer and a science writer. And he came out um, in the early 70s writing about ESP in his book called The Roots of Coincidence. And when he died, and he was very, very successful, he, he, he left a large bequest to a university to uh, establish a chair in parapsychology. And I think it went to a university in Edinburgh to do that.
3: Well, well, I see a, a parallel with your output as well. Um, you've written some very good biographies. And the list of them—I mean, Jung, Madame Blavatsky, Swedenborg, uh, Crowley, as you mentioned prior. There's uh, Ospensky, uh, Steiner. Uh, you kind of have a similar <laughs> approach too, where you're throwing change-ups in there um, by featuring, you know, writers uh, and thinkers that have been influential in your process, and I—I I think that's for all writers out there that's always a good way to um i think focus not only your own ideas but focus on how those ideas have developed and how your thinking has has progressed based on the kinds of of uh, minds that that you can appreciate and uh, and uh, identify with so i i think it's uh that's you know, a bit of a, uh, a testament to your um, ability to spread spread around and and let your readers kind of have more of an inside track on on your development. And I think that's that's very good.
4: No, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm very happy I've had an opportunity to write about these people because uh, one thing it allows me to kind of put my ideas together about them. Okay, this is this is what I've got from Young, and this is this is where I see what's important about him, and clearly other people. We'll have got other things and see other things. So it's all part of that conversation. Um, but it's, you know, it allows me to say, okay, yeah, this, this, this is what I got, and I can take this and, and bring it on to the next thing. And uh,
2: The next thing, the, ladies and gentlemen, consists of several minutes of necessary business, because that's how <laughs> radio works. Unless you have, of course, a membership in Paracast Plus, and you won't hear them. com if you're interested. Gary, Gene, Chris... You're in
3: the
4: Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
16: This is Dan Pilla. Do you owe the IRS money you can't pay? Are tax debts crippling you? I've defended people from the IRS for over 30 years.
12: Worried about lead, fluoride, and other contaminants in your drinking water? Get a ProPure with the Pro1G 2.0 Cleanable Reusable Filter and remove up to 200 contaminants. Drink water the way nature meant it to be, clean, crisp, and refreshing. See the complete line of ProPure products, including the new ProMax Shower Filter. There's a ProPure for you. Visit your authorized ProPure dealer for details or ProPureUSA.com. That's P-R-O-P-U-R-U-S-A.com. Get a 12, 36, or 48-month supply. Or get items individually and still save big. You're getting soap products twice as good as what you're using now. Earth-friendly and natural soaps. Your family deserves the best. Happiness is 5starsoap.com. Why not put your money up the drain for a change?
14: You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com. And if you decide you like it and want to connect with people, use the code George for a substantial discount. Mark Rawlings, president of ParanormalDate.com, says so many people hunger to share their experiences about the paranormal, the unexplainable, or the afterlife, and so much more, and this is the source for them to meet and share that common interest. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com, ParanormalDate.com, and use the code GEORGE if you decide to connect with someone you like.
18: Are you tired of commuting to a job that makes someone else rich? Working harder than ever, but getting nowhere Do you hate spending hundreds of dollars every week on daycare? Having someone else raise your children? With our opportunities, you can start earning money as soon as next week. You get to be the boss, work from home, and live a happier life.
16: This is Kurt
14: Seven, the author of UFO Mysteries, and you're listening to The Paracast.
2: Now, I don't know how good Gary Lachman was in the recording studio, but he does all those little stingers in one take. Were you one take, Gary? I
4: was pretty good in the studio. I was pretty good in
3: the studio. So you were a one take wonder in the studio then?
4: Yes, it was well. We had one one great one take was uh, the very first uh, Blondie uh, recording. It's a song called Ex Offender that I wrote music for, and, uh, and Debbie wrote the lyrics. But um, I, I actually play the guitar I play guitar in that track, so even though I was a bassist, I played guitar. That, that was one of the reasons why I, you know had to leave the band because I wanted to play guitar more. But there's there's this well, I should say there's a kind of Dick Dale surf guitar solo. <laughs> in, 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 in in the song, and I did that in one take, but it was recorded in the hallway of Radio City Music Hall uh, because they wanted to get this echo sound. So they had the amp, me playing at one end of this hall, and the mic then at the other end of, of it. So yeah, it, yeah, it was a one-take wonder, yeah.
3: <laughs> I wish I could say that. <laughs> yeah, I have had my moments, but uh, generally I would have to work out a little bit. <laughs>
4: Well, it wasn't very difficult what I was
3: playing. so. It, yeah. Unfortunately, I, I had a tendency to put a little bit more pressure on myself than I needed to, <laughs> which is generally how it goes. You're not That's so true. much worried about everything else.
4: My background in rock and roll has actually helped me in, in my new career because I, g- I give lots of talks. Right. Uh, and I never feel uncomfortable or stage fright or anything like that because I figure, you know, I played in front of 80,000 people a few times. Wow. So. Having a, a crowd of 50 or 60 or 100 or so
3: is... is, is uh, <laughs> uh, everything kind of pales in comparison when you, when you think about that, you know, playing for yeah, festivals. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, once it, it gets to a point where there's so many people, it's almost like they're not there, even though yeah. they do make a lot of noise.
4: Absolutely. That, that, that's really the case. I remember, um, I'm sorry, we're going down rock and roll hole, uh, uh, memory lane again, but one show when I was playing with Iggy, we opened for the Rolling Stones at oh, the, the, the Silver Dome, and, and, oh my God. <laughs> and you can't see you can't see anything it's just black yes. in front of you but then they hated us they weren't there to see Iggy Pop they were there to oh see through and even they worse. threw everything they could possibly get their hands on at us so out of, out of this darkness you suddenly see like sneakers flying <laughs> you know at you. Oh,
3: geez how disconcerting
2: <laughs> I always like wonder that. when they throw things like that do they come by backstage after and say can I have that back
3: well, on that
4: show what happened was Bill Graham, one of the great, you know, rock sure. promoters, what he did was he had somebody collect everything that was thrown at us. And then before the Stones came on, he went out with Iggy Pop and they read off. There's twenty five big lighters. There are, you know, 16 combs. You know, they just read off everything that was thrown at us. So, uh, And there was money. People threw money at us,
3: quarters and things like that. Uh, it, quarters, that's, that could be yeah. dangerous. But if they're throwing, you know, rolled up C notes, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was pretty. I mean, but there were a couple
4: bottles. There were a couple bottles. So it was, it was a dangerous business.
3: Yeah. Well, especially like, if you're the opening
2: act and people pay good money for tickets to see a certain band. Yeah. Whoever opens for them, however good they are, you're really getting the short end there, aren't you?
4: True, but I tell you, I have a secret that I, I, I was told at different times to keep, you know, keep to myself. But at that show, I went out into the audience when the Stones were playing because I actually had never seen them, you know, perform. Uh, so I was watching them, and then I could see that behind them, there was actually another band. Stones are playing, and then. Behind a partition, there was another band playing, and I figured it out because that's why Keith Richards or Ronnie Wood could, at different times, take their hands off the guitar and kind of just start clapping, you know, over their heads and stuff like that, and and the song would keep going. So they kind of had another
3: band behind them, kind of keeping the. They rhythm had going. ringers. I I swear to
4: God, this was true.
3: Well, now we're not talking the monkeys uh, in '65 <laughs> here. I'm not 66. saying they didn't play at
4: all. But it seemed like there was another band back there keeping the rhythm going, so Ron and Keith could kind of, you know, groove. In, in what year was this? Nineteen eighty-one.
3: Yeah, Keith. Was I, have still... to, I have
4: to say, the other band on the bill was Santana. So you know.
3: Wow, what a great show!
4: Yeah, that's back in the, back in the day.
2: Well, the Santana didn't need to have a band behind oh, him no, other than the one he played
4: it's, with.
2: It's, it's he played. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting wow. about the Monkees, though. It's kind of crazy here, because they all played guitar, you know David mm. Jones didn't play an instrument, but the other three played yeah. guitar, but yeah. they had to put Mickey Dolans on drums because they needed a drummer,
4: yeah, I know I know I know well, they you know and the, well they were kind of the first sex pistols they were invented, right, and then yeah. they kind of came out and did their own thing and all
2: that, yeah. even with the death of David Jones, they came out with a new album, Mike Nesmith mm. still performs with them occasionally.
4: Yeah, you know it's kind of cool that they can
2: do it at seventy years old.
4: Absolutely, and head has got to be one of the strangest films ever made. <laughs>
16: yeah,
4: I mean if you haven't seen that, that 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 film That's definitely worth the Netflix.
3: Yeah, a, a double a bill
4: would be that film and performance, and that'll say something really about the the tail end of the sixties.
3: Yeah, yeah, the performance was a rather um,
4: very very dark uh,
3: film. Very 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 dark. Yeah, you know Anita Pallenberg was hmm, mm. quite a uh, quite an interesting character. Oh
4: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's all myths around that too that nobody came out of that alive, as it were, because uh, apparently you know, she became addicted. I forget the actress's name who plays this kind of androgynous, you know, character. You're not quite sure whether it's a boy or a girl. Apparently, she came to a bad end. James Fox who's the only real actor in the film. The story was that he was actually dosed, you know, while it was being made. And such a bad experience that he gave up acting after that and, and became a born again Christian for a while. Uh, And obviously David, David Camel, you know, wound up, you know, the filmmaker wound up blowing his brains out. Um, So yeah, there's a, there's a, again, this, this was kind of the, the dark sinister side of the occult, that was attached to this kind of weird stuff that's going on in the '60s that I talk about in, in you know, my book. Turn off your mind and, and yeah. all that. So it's this kind of you know strange, weird kind of milieu there. Yeah, and there's
3: there's other examples too of of, of uh, bands and um, and you know celebrity types, actresses, actors that um, have a string of very bad luck after mm-hmm. uh, being publicly identified as having interests in the occult and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's someone should write a book about that sometime because <laughs> there's some good ones.
4: Probably is. I mean, there's that book, Season of the Witch, that um, right. is, is, is a good book about the
3: occult and rock and all that. So. Yeah, yeah, you know, and um, and also uh, the number of people that are, are have a, a more than a passing interest in the occult that you would mm-hmm. never imagine that uh, oh, yeah. they're able to keep uh, any me- uh, mention or reference to that interest uh, well out of sight of the mm-hmm. public. Um, there's quite a number of people that would surprise you. <laughs> oh
4: yeah, I mean, well, uh, maybe president. not you,
3: but it would surprise a lot of
4: people. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. I mean, he, well, he, like somebody like Ronald Reagan, he had a, he had a, a real interest in it and all that kind right. of thing. No, it's not the first person you would think, you know, to uh, to be someone interested in that kind of thing. So yeah, well, yeah, no, it's, it's there, you know. I mean, how how what it means and actually what it leads to is another question. But the fact that they actually have the interest is is something that that's you know.
2: But politicians can't be interested in anything that isn't material.
4: It's true. It's true. Well, who knows about Trump? Who knows what's going to, you know, come out of the closet with him or you know, whatever? You know. Um. Well, he watched I, I, short I, I attention you, I, span I, I was theater say, being or something. Over here for Twenty years, United states looks really, really increasingly strange.
3: Yeah, I, I can imagine, especially coming from. Uh, from a New York area, and um, you know watching watching the uh, you know the various uh, <laughs> pitfalls and pratfalls and uh, trials and tribulations of, uh, of 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 trump and 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 oh, any, any politician from New york really yeah, yeah,
2: no, 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 no. the problem you see there is with the mainstream media, not lamestream the mainstream media. Sure. These well, are big too- corporations that are appealing to the widest number of people, mm. getting the best ratings, and they dumb down everything. And because they dumb down anything, when you start getting into abstracts about any particular person, a politician, a rock star, anything, that's way, way, way above their heads, at least in terms of what they want to tell you about. We've got yeah. more to come with Gary Lockman and Gene and Chris. You're in The podcast. stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the PowerCast. You go to store.thepowercast.com, stop by and take a shopping tour.
0: Diabetes is at war with your circulatory system. Fight back with Cardivite. Cardivite is a dietary supplement containing powerful herbs for circulation and healthy cardiac function. Improve your energy, stamina, and mental acuity. Reduce swelling, cold hands, and risk of amputation. Get your blood flowing with Cardivite. This five-star rated product was developed by a diabetic pharmacist and is available online at www.getbloodflowing.com. That's www.getbloodflowing.com.
8: How confident are you in your food storage? If it was all you had to rely on, would it sustain your family? Hard times, good times, or any time? New Mana Storable Food is the proven superior choice. Learn for yourself what happened when one man ate only New Mana Storable Food for an entire month. Online at PowerPrepper.com. That's PowerPrepper.com. Experience the New Mana difference.
4: America made food storage. I love to eat. Yum!
13: Dangerous blood clot device alert. If you or a loved one had an IVC filter placed to prevent blood clots from traveling to your heart or lungs and suffered an injury, you may be entitled to substantial financial compensation. The FDA warns that IVC filters may cause serious complications such as heart or lung damage, internal bleeding, and even death. These dangerous blood clot devices can break and the metal fragments can travel to your heart or lungs causing serious injuries. If you or a one suffered organ damage or other injuries from an IVC filter, you may be entitled to substantial financial compensation. Act now. Time is limited to file a claim. For a free consultation and free information, call Injury Help Desk at 800 478 1507. 800 478 1507. 800 478 1507. This is an advertisement. Paid non attorney spokesperson. Injuryhelpdesk.com is responsible for this advertisement. Principal Office Las Vegas, Nevada.
12: Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri?
6: I
2: raised this, so maybe I'll just do it because we have one segment left with you, Gary. It's just been moving so quickly. And that is, this another story. You're writing about a lot of stuff here as we are with our show and what I write and what Chris writes and what we talk about here, that is way off the radar Mm -hmm. from the media, what people are being told. And so we have someone like a a Colin Wilson who has this fascinating life writing sci-fi, writing crime, writing about philosophy, all sorts of things that also are mostly beyond someone's radar. So, In looking for this, how does anyone or can anyone take this kind of material and break through? I mean, obviously, you had to be involved to some degree with what the popular media might want because of your history in rock and roll. But how does that get done with books like this or can it?
4: Well, you know, I I think there's a big readership out there. I mean, Wilson himself in his day had had a big readership. But, you know, other people doing other work along the same lines are out there in different ways, like Graham Hancock, let's say, or uh, Whitney Streber. I mean, the, these are more focused kinds of things on, on particular topics, ancient civilizations or sort of the abduction experience. Well, of um, course, with UFO but, abductions,
2: we, you know, they get to be on the simple level. Okay, aliens come yeah. here, they take us aboard, do some silly physical examinations, and they send us aloft. And the thing, same thing with UFO sightings. Okay, there's a spaceship... That's it. Ghosts? Yeah, spirits of the dead. It's your dead grandmother wanted to come back and tell you that the secret gold locket's in the safe.
4: Yeah. Well, I tell you, you know, the real thing is is called esoteric. Esoteric means the inner. It's not the surface. It's not the outer covering of things. It's the inner content. It's the kernel. It's not the shell.
2: But isn't that something we need to understand to better realize what life is all about?
4: I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's true that more people today have some sense of that, let's say. I said there was this occult revival in the 1960s uh, that was caught up with lots of other things, you know, the, the sexual revolution, the psychedelic revolution, social revolutions and all that. At that point, it was it was part of this big thing that was happening. And then it kind of settled. You know, the revolution didn't really happen. Atlantis didn't really rise. And so, we, you know, we got into the gritty 70s, but there was an underlying sensibility that was established, and I think it's 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 grown. It has its own problems. The New Age has its own problems. It's too simplistic. It, it it doesn't think. It's too uncritical. There's too many wacky things that it just accepts, you know, without thinking about it. But I think it suggests that there's an underlying hunger for this other kind of thing. And yes, most of the stuff about what we've been talking about now, when it shows up on television, it's, it's the most simplistic, dumbed-down kind of version. I mean, I, I've done a few of these documentaries. And the idea is, yes, okay, yes, it's not it's, it's not really well-researched, and it's not really, you know, insightful, but you're on TV, kid, and you'll get lots of people, you know, hearing what you got to say about it. And so you do a few of those, and you realize, well, actually, in many ways, you're not really helping your own cause, because you're just kind of providing content for these other guys. You know that that in the end they're going to say the same thing, and it's the thing that you don't want to say. You you want to say the opposite. You got to have faith. You got to hope that there's other people like you out there, and then gradually there'll be an undercurrent. There'll be a kind of osmosis effect where these deeper understandings will spread. They'll spread by word of mouth. They'll spread by programs like this, like what we're doing now and other interviews I do and, and other programs and other people do these interviews. I think there's a hunger for this kind of thing, but you're not going to see immediate evidence for it. Just like you're not going to see a big neon sign come up over the horizon and say, okay, new age starts now. Age of Aquarius starts now. It's nothing like that. This is something I'm actually going to be writing about. I've been asked to do an article about this kind of thing. In my books, I often talk about what I call an evolution of consciousness, means that Over history, our basic kind of the form, the shape of our consciousness has changed over time. You know, does that mean that things are getting better? No, I don't think it automatically does. I think um, consciousness can shift and change during the worst possible crises. And I think that's what we're heading into now or or, Mm -hmm. or, or, are in, have been in, you know, for the last few decades. It can it can decimate everything that's around it at the time.
3: Yeah, hopefully at the very least it'll shake some people out of their waking coma and, and wake some folks up because
4: absolutely. And before November eighth, yeah.
2: <laughs> we gotta watch um, this very carefully like telling- because talking about politically correct, Gary, I don't know how often you've listened to the Powercast, but when we get into anything about politics more than just a couple of surface details. Yeah, it is so polarized there. You can't really have a legitimate discussion like we have one listener who wrote and says, you you know, don't do that. And then said, we shouldn't even keep any money that's generated by the show. We should just have entry level jobs. We're not allowed to touch that money. So I don't know. There's a lot of wackiness out there.
4: It's it's the same thing here in the UK. It's got very polarized recently because of the whole Brexit thing. Sure. Even the EU. And there's an incredible sense of nationalism here now. And there's an incredible sense of everything has to be British and all that kind of thing. And I, you know, I'm nothing against things being British, but it's a real, I don't know how to say it. It's a lot of people I know that are Europeans that are from Europe, they've been here for a long time. They're going back because um, they really feel the atmosphere here is very inimicable, you know, to them. And sadly, in, in some places, this whole thing is unleashed a really horrible kind of xenophobia and, and jingoism and all that. So I, I I think it's very scary times, you know. I mean, in many ways, Rudolf Steiner, quoting from the Book of Revelations, he talked about the coming war of all against all. And I sometimes wonder if that's, you know, what we're kind of drifting into. I mean, look at Syria. Who, who Who's shooting rockets at
16: who?
3: Yeah. Right. Just to give you an example of of uh, you know the indigenous culture of of the Americas, um, the Hopi who've been here for tens of thousands of years, Grandfather Martin, who was a holder of the official you know uh, prophecy uh, fire clan prophecy tablets, when he saw one of the, the Hopi purple flowers coming up through a, a snow blank, uh, bank during a blizzard, he interpreted that as being fulfillment of one of the prophecies sure. and. Probably the most harrowing of the of the prophecies, uh, the beginning of the War of the Gourd of Ashes, and he he did a press conference with the governor of New Mexico and said, within six eight months, the final conflict will start, and that's when six months later we went into Kuwait to kick Hussein out of Kuwait uh, in right. Desert Storm. Yeah. and uh, up to his death, he said, "Yeah, that's that's it. That's the war. That's uh, that's that's the biggie." Yeah,
4: well, well, I hope everybody is wrong about this. <laughs> What, 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 what one of my concerns was like, because I was I was very very privileged in my in my life. I didn't have to go to Vietnam. My father was in World War II. I didn't have to get drafted. I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to do anything. None of that really impinged on my life. But I I did start to think, well, actually, when the excrement hits the air conditioner, it's going to be when I'm in my seventies or something like that, or my late sixties when I'm going to be kind of too old and feeble to actually kind of deal with the fallout. I hope everybody's.
2: I resemble that remark because, Gary, I am, as most listeners know, older than you are. You know, we have to end it here because the clock sends me a little message and it's kind yeah, we'll of like a that taptic that. engine that grabs me by the neck and says, wrap the show up. Gary Lockman, where can we find more of the stuff you do?
4: Uh, well, you can find my books on Amazon and you could also find stuff about me at my my blog, which is basically GaryLockman.co.uk.co.uk, Um And, you know, Put my name into Google and you'll find lots of stuff up there.
2: We even find your age and your birth date, by the way. No, no, if you want that to happen, but we know.
4: December 24th, 1955.
2: Yeah, just a mere lad. You can find us on Twitter if you look for the Paracast. Look for a pair of official, don't accept any substitutes, official Paracast fan clubs on Facebook. We also have that second radio show that's going to be fascinating this week. It's called After the Paracast. And if you want to know more about it, go to plus.theparacast.com to learn about the Paracast Plus. We give you a commercial-free version of this show and other exciting features. The price, as Alfred E. Newman said so many years ago, our price, cheap. (laughs) It's a monthly subscription price annual five years even your lifetime, and I'm going to be here a while, as old as I am. I'm am <laughs> old as the hills, but I'm going to be here for a long, long time. That's what some people tell me. Other people said, you know, you've outlived your usefulness. Just pack it in, man. But I'm not going to do it. You want to learn more about the PowerCast Plus? All the information you need, including simple sign-up instructions at PowerCast. Dot .com Gary Lockman I'm very happy to meet you and to meet a famous member of the rock and roll Hall of Fame and a great author thanks for joining us on the Powercast
4: Entirely my pleasure